on today's show, we are getting to know Emma. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Andre Psyche is the freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up on any social media. It's Andre Psyche. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E. The next time you are looking to add some creative stimulation to your social media circle. Patreon.com helps creators like me earn a monthly income that will be put towards podcast expenses. Support the Getting to Know You Pod's creative endeavors through Patreon for as little as $2 a month. There are all sorts of costs that I had no fucking idea about associated with posting podcasts, not to mention the need for equipment and production. So dear listeners, if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests or just want to help keep the pod going, go to our Patreon. The link's in the description and your support of the Getting to Know You pod is very much appreciated. Two bucks too much? Here are three free ways to help. Get your thumbs ready. One, push the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening to the Getting to Know You pod on. Did that? Thank you. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on your social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Go ahead, open those apps, click away if you haven't already. Thanks again. Three, go to Apple, write a review. The internet tells me this might be the most important and impactful. So thank you. Your support, dear listener, whether it's with your thumbs through our Patreon or ideally both, is greatly appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely and doggone it. And Emma, I found out, um, really wants to get shag carpet in her parents' bedroom. So thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, that makes it sound very weird. <laughs> That's this is the best thing to do when you know someone for two minutes. I just want my parents to fuck. No, I like it's my bedroom now, and there was shag, red shag carpet. Growing up, my parents were like had like the quintessential like eighties kind of porno looking bedroom like that a giant fish tank it looked like a drug dealer bedroom and like red shag and then there's like red fireplace that you pointed out behind me and um I, I don't know I just want to bring that whole vibe back I just feel like it was so perfect there's so much there um the the fish why why fish um well actually so my stepdad uh his dad uh, owned a pet store when he was growing up oh, and they sold so fish and like um, a lot of different things. In fact, because nothing was regulated back then. Monkeys, uh, alligators, they had all sorts of like animals back in like the 60s. Um, and so he loves keeping fish. He's like obsessed with keeping fish. And we always had a giant fish tank with like, you know, lots of different kinds of like very exotic looking things and shrimp and fish and stuff, which as a kid, I just like had no interest in thought was really lame. And now as an adult, I'm like, that must've been so much work. <laughs> you know, you already had five kids. 
And you were into fish tanks too? Like that's wild. Yeah, I was thinking of the cost. I heard like aside from yeah. a boat, fish tanks just drain your pockets immediately. I, well, my parents are really cheap, so I can't imagine it cost them anything. They probably got <laughs> everything at a yard sale and like, you know, bred the fish themselves. My parents are wildly cheap, so I'm, I'm sure it wasn't expensive, but it looked like it was because it was so beautifully maintained because yeah. he really cared about it. The, dude, that's a... I've never, that's someone I got to get on the pod. Like someone who used to sell animals, not like the illegal, who's the Netflix guy that ran for governor of Oklahoma? Oh yeah, yeah. Tried um, to kill Ty the, Tiger King? Is yeah, that what you're talking about? What was his name? I want to I want to call him Joe Dirt and that's so insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel it's fair. That's <laughs> like, what pops into my mind as well. Right? So <laughs> Yeah, Um, I think his first name is Joe. But like, I want to talk to somebody who actually like pre-internet had to have a, like had to have a monkey guy. Like your dad had yeah. to have an alligator guy. Yeah. How did you find a monkey guy in like 1974? Right? You know, was I was the, my grandpa, my grandpa was the monkey guy. Apparently they had a monkey growing up. We begged for a monkey when we were children. Cause my dad had had, my stepdad had had one and we wanted one so bad. And he was like, worst pet in the world. It would jump from the curtains and bite everybody. And it pooped on everyone. And he was like, they did not like enjoy having a monkey and he refused to get us one. Yeah, I remember that from friends. Like Ross's monkey had to wear the diaper. Yeah. And it just yeah. seemed like you were insulting the monkey. Like you just yeah. wouldn't let him grow up. <laughs> the monkey had to remain a baby. You're in first... infantilizing this monkey. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, demasculizing it, right? Demasculizing mm -hmm. it. Um, how, what, what, like, what type of monkey? Is it one of those type of monkeys from friends? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, there's pictures of it, but I don't know my monkeys well enough to say like what kind it was. But there are like pictures of my dad as a, I think he was probably 12 or 13 with the monkey. Like, it's funny. There's never anybody touching the monkey. It's always just like up in the corner on a, on a curtain rod, just like looking terrifying and ready to pounce. Um, Waiting. <laughs> but they had, he had an alligator as a kid, like, which, you know, this is all so horrible and insensitive, but like when it got too big, they like released it into a swamp and you're like, oh, that's in California. Not great, you guys. But it, it was the Wild West back then Yeah, in the 70s and 80s you were, or 60s and 70s. You were just doing whatever you felt like. Yeah, you hear about that shit all the time in Florida, you know, with snakes yeah. and alligators. Like it's just, it's almost like it was accepted behavior. Yeah. Yeah, the, the boas and pythons that people release and, and stuff down there. I'm more scared of a python than I am in an alligator, for sure. Like, all the videos, an alligator seems like you, you could have an understanding with. And for some reason, they always seem full and slow. And I know they got, like, a little bit of sprint to them. Yeah, they must. But, I, like, there was this video where um, a, a herring... So alligators have been going off on, a, like, golf courses. I, I've seen a couple... Um, Joe Rogan actually posted a couple, like, 15-foot, 1,000-pound alligators that are walking across golf courses in Florida and they're, they're monstrous. And there was like a little herring that scared one away. And I was like, Oh, there you kind of froze for a minute there on my end. Sure. Anyway, it's my Delaware internet. You may be, are you in Idaho? Oh, okay. Right I was just checking. Yeah. I'm in Idaho, but we have like, yeah. you know, I don't know, decent Idaho <laughs> internet. Yeah. I think, I think mine's like four, three. In my little I'm texting my son to tell him to get off the internet just in case because they're gaming downstairs, I'm sure. Oh. So I'm like, get off the internet just in case. <laughs> it's a very mom thing to do on a podcast. That's, <laughs> it's like, that's um, yeah, that's something I don't, 
I guess I've never had to worry about, but it's something that I've heard is like a real thing. If you have a bunch of kids and like everyone's cell phones, everyone's tablets, yeah. and then well, you and everybody's, streaming a you know, bunch of stuff. Somebody, everybody's streaming something, everybody's playing something. And so, yeah, a lot of times when I'm having to do a podcast in the evening when they're home, I'm like, okay, it's my turn on the internet for an hour. It's my turn, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let me get it from the spigot. <laughs> Let me yeah. get it a little from the spigot. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, all, all I was saying is like alligators, the video, when I saw a bird scare away an alligator, I'm like, I thought you were a predator, yeah. man. Like this thing just yeah. flexed on you and you were just moseyed about your way. I was like, eh, yeah, I could probably take you. I could figure something out. I lived in Mississippi um, for a while. And when I first got down there, I was a little afraid of the alligators. But then pretty soon, like you see that the locals are not scared of the alligators, but real scared of snakes. And I was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to get my priorities in order here. Yeah. And because uh, the alligators are not that big of a threat, but the snakes are pretty poisonous down there, it turns out. Yeah, that's I, I don't have a ton of snake experience myself in Delaware. Just I guess with the cold, we um like I don't know if we have like an aggressive poisonous snake that you can come about if you're just like on trails walking. But for some reason, you like watch a video, then you think you're living in like the Amazon. Right. So if you watch a documentary and you go for a jog and now all of a sudden every little rattle, you feel something's going to leap out at you and stun you and kill you and you're going to yeah. be paralyzed. And it's such an irrational fear. And I've never actually had to experience it, but it's in me. It's a weird survival mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Like how dogs are automatically afraid of snakes or cats, you know. Yeah. So I, I should maybe be a better podcaster. I don't know. You'll have to tell me either now or after um, if there's like a typical standard. But I didn't do like a formal introduction thing. So That's your podcast, man. <laughs> you can do whatever so you want. Like, Thank you for the freedom. <laughs> you can do a formal introduction. We can just be like, this is Emma. And then, and then we're just talking about snakes. That's fine and with me. That's what she's, she's, the, she's the animal lady. <laughs> if you need a guy, she's your guy to get you. I'm your snake guy. I'm your monkey guy. <laughs> but I came across your tweet and it was something like, kids dropped off my kids free for the weekend, I'm going to hate on some males on the internet or something oh. like that, which like I butchered it. The tweet was so much better. And I was like, Hey, do you want to come on a podcast? And you were like, yeah, man, let's make that work. And I thought that was awesome that you were like that open to it, but I hadn't like clicked on your profile or anything. And I didn't realize like, you're like a comedian comedian. Like you're legit. Yeah. You have like a fucking <laughs> special and yeah. shit. I was like, I do four albums, a special. Dude. Yeah. And yeah, that's really funny that you're just like, I'm just going to ask this gal who hates men uh, if she'll be on the podcast. And I was like, sure, I'll be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. That's... Neither one of us did any amount of research. <laughs> it's, right. it's weird. I like <laughs> We are living loose. We are, that's some loose living right there. Especially I was, I mean, I did, I did check you out because like years ago, I accidentally went on a far, like a far right podcast because... I was in Seattle and somebody was like, hey, do you want to do my podcast? And he was on the same show I was on. And I was like, sure, that's fine. And then like a few minutes into the podcast, I was like, oh my, oh no. It was like two dudes who now like run the Seattle Proud Boy scene. So like real, real legit dudes. So I I mean, I didn't, I guess I should have right at the front been like, hey, before I go on your podcast, are you a Proud Boy? But you seemed like just a normal guy who does an interview show. So I was like, yeah, sure. And also, like, it's weird. I used to never, uh, I used to hate doing podcasts, and um, I never, ever did them. And it's like, you know, a big part of being a comedian is you're supposed to always be like, I guess on somebody's podcast, and, I, and every time anybody asked, I would be like, no, I hate it. And then during COVID, because that was kind of the only way to communicate a lot of times, like, right. and to, like, reach fans and stuff, and people were asking me, 
I actually kind of fell in love with it and like really started to enjoy it and have fun with it, which before it would just give me like a lot of anxiety. Um, I'm not like a, I don't know, like uh, I'm a writer comedian. I'm not like a, I'm, I'm here to do 50 riffs comedian. So like on a podcast, I'm like, I don't know. I was a really like a shy kid, really, you know, like a quiet kid and stuff. And so like on a podcast, I used to get just very like anxious, but something about COVID kind of cracked it for me where I was just like, oh, this is just talking. I can actually do that. This is fine. So yeah. I would not have expected that. The, the whole like writer versus the riff thing. And I guess like if you're legit and like this is a profession of yours, there's like a certain type of pressure to just be like zinger, zinger, zinger. Yeah. <laughs> is that what and, it and is? Honest, and honestly, like I'm a, uh, if in person, like a more serious person than probably like, like what people commit, you know, people, if you're a comedian, if you're on a plane or something and someone's talking to you, they're expecting you to like in the moment be really funny. And you're like, I'm not at work. What the, what the fuck's <laughs> happening here? Like, I'm just, I'm just on a plane, like eating my sandwich. Just, and so I, like, I've always kind of felt a little weird about that because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a more serious, like, I don't know, sincere person. And a lot of times I would be on a podcast and people would be like, ask, like, ask a question and I would give a serious answer and everybody else would give like a joke answer. And I'd be like, oh, you fucked up, Arnold. <laughs> like, you're Read such a dork. <laughs> like, I just always would like you know, be vulnerable and be in the moment and be like, yeah, I mean, uh, this is my experience. And also, honestly, like, um, it, it was when I first started, you know, there was a lot, a lot less women, um, in comedy and a lot of the podcasts I would go on would be like five dudes who would just be really misogynist the whole time and terrible. And when I was younger and a less experienced comic, like, I mean, I, I like, I was like a mom, <laughs> you know, I was really sheltered. I didn't know how to deal with that. And I just was like, I would go into these situations that were like really painful and misogynistic um, and a lot of times very sexually harassing. And I just would, I w because like you're on, like you're on the spot and you're supposed to be being funny, but you're also being massively dehumanized. And I would yeah. just like. Weird balance. <laughs> yeah. And I would always be like, I don't like my instinct is to be a bitch to you guys. Right. But then I get like a whole bunch of like hate from your followers and I have to deal with like a bunch of like online harassment and weird shit um, and being doxxed and stuff. Uh, or I can like go along with it and joke with you, even though like at my core, that's like killing me and like eating me alive and making me really sad. So, so for like four years, I was like, I'm not doing podcasts. This sucks. Like I'm not doing any of it. But then during COVID, I was like, I'm just, I think I'm just, just going to be a bitch. I think I'll just <laughs> speak more. Like, I'll just deal with I'll just deal with the hate. And if somebody's awful to me on a podcast, I'll either be like, I'm bouncing, I'm not doing this, I'm leaving, which I like have done, you know, and just like been like, oh, I don't, I don't like you said, like I'm that when I was first starting out, I was like a baby, and I thought you had to like do everything to make it in comedy. You had to like be open to everything, and like I'm a special. I have fucking four albums now. I've I'll be like, I'm, I don't have to put up with this shit, <laughs> you know, like I'm leaving. So some of it's a confidence issue. I think, you know, just kind of getting to the point where I feel like I can say no to stuff that is harmful. Uh, but yeah, that's why I was just like, sure guy, I'll do your podcast. <laughs> you're, you're definitely not threatening in any way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't feel threatened anymore. I think I did. Um, I think I was pretty, pretty intimidated and scared of men when I first started 
Um, and now I don't feel that anymore. Like, um, I kind of found my, like, my legs, you know, finally. So I was talking, it was actually, she was um, a comedian. I think she still does comedy. She was into a bunch of shit. Like one of these brilliant people that was like talented in producing, trying to figure out if she's being a comedian, was also a writer, could do like satire. And like someone less talented like me is like, pick a fucking lane. Like stop being good at like a bunch of shit because it upsets me. (laughs) Which is honestly like weird because comedians are like, like that. Like I have so many friends who are like, oh, I dabble a little in this and they are like a concert pianist and they're, you know, a classically trained like musician and they also are like an amazing like artist and they can draw like crazy and they're just like so multifaceted, which is one reason I kind of hate like I don't always refer to myself as a comedian because I feel like it can box you into that mm. so that when you do something I'm um like serious or like, you know, real real or vulnerable or artistic or whatever, people are like, no, go back to the dick jokes. Speaking of, her her thing was like Louis, I forget what she called it, but it was basically Louis C.K. And that's kind of what she got some notoriety for. She called him out in like a very graphic way. Oh, uh, was it uh, Megan? Um, I'm I'm spacing her last name right now. I don't think it was Megan. God, it was, oh, it's been over a year. So apologies. To her. Oh, yeah. No, it's okay. I mean, actually, a lot of wonderful women have done that. So, okay. But that's, yeah. But so, a long way to get to part of her thing about dudes and like a little bit of a visceral was like, they act like they're these fucking gatekeepers. Like, I have to bow down and conform to them in order to get access to a bunch of shit. And she's like, I wasn't fucking having it, man. Like, I'm going to go so extreme anti gatekeeper. That it, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be a fire hydrant. I'm yelling. I'm shouting. There's all this extra pressure. So I, was I just, love it. I was wondering, is that part of the vibe? Not to put words in your mouth, but no, no. I, I love. I now after the show, I'm going to ask you to please tell me who that is because I love that. Um, I think it was a little different for me because um, I. So that was part of the reason. I the gatekeeping thing for sure. Like I definitely had this feeling of like. I'm never going to be able to keep my mouth shut long enough to like get a lot of these. Um, like there were there were opportunities where like I just I was like I can't work with this person, you know, and I passed on like big opportunities, and um, and that was one reason I self-produced my special was because I was like I'm not gonna get a Comedy Central special. Like I've burned some bridges there, um, and also I'm not in LA able the like half hour audition constantly stuff. So I was just kind of like, I'm up here in fucking Idaho, you know, I've kind of made a name for myself, like outing dickhead men by name and just saying it. And so I finally like just produced my own special, which I got lucky, like Bobcat Goldthwait and Dana Gould gave me money to do it. And they believed in me and they, I was like, I was backed by some bigger people, but I kind of did feel like I have to do this myself. And I was like, fuck the gatekeepers. Um, I don't think it occurred to me until... I don't know, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit because from this, part of it maybe is that I came into comedy at the age of 30. um, And a lot of the people I was around were younger, Mm. like older, much older men, but much younger women. And I came in as a mom, as an adult, and I would be in situations where I would be like, this is unacceptable. Like I would be like the adult in the room (laughs) 
you know, because <laughs> I would be like, such a bad oh, feeling. absolutely not. We are not treating people like this, you know? And I think a lot of that was just the mom in me. Like I would be somewhere and somebody was sexually harassing all the women. And, and I also, I think I also had always have had this feeling of like, I don't want to get famous. My goal was never to get famous. It was never to get rich. I always like, you know, as a single mom and I was always just like, I want to feed my kids. And I want to be able to like have a normal life. And um, so I never had anything to lose. And I think that was a, there was a lot of freedom in that. Like I was able to name names and I was able to tell people to fuck off. And um, I was able to stick up for my, I mean, I, it's funny because I've always been better about sticking up for other people than myself. There are situations where looking back, I'm like, man, you would have, you would have told, you would have told that person to fuck off if they were treating anyone else that way. But because it's me, I was kind of like, oh, okay. Oh, I guess that's my fault. But yeah, I think I love that. I love that somebody was just like, I'm just going to spew. And I, I think that's a really healthy way to look at the industry as a woman is to just be like, I'm going to take up as much space as I want because you will work with guys who are so not funny, who have no problem taking up the entire room and all the air in it. Or like, that's one of the other reason I didn't do podcasts is because I would go on a podcast with like five guys and I would say like a minute a minute's worth of stuff because they would just talk over me the whole time. Oh, shit. And um, like like I was on Burt Kreischer's podcast once. And I mean, I, I literally said two minutes worth of stuff. And it was just so, so much talking. And I, and I don't think Burt's a bad guy or anything. I think he has shitty friends. So maybe he is a bad guy. I don't know. <laughs> Burt's one of those people I like personally. But I'm like, why don't you hang out with these fucking dudes? So I don't know. But like, I think, like, a lot of times men don't realize that they're doing that. They don't realize that they're taking up all the air because it's, in their mind, their air. So, you know? If I may have 20 seconds of air. Um, no, but what I'm wondering, like, a weird little, like, humanistic psychological theory is when the woman's around, and I actually had a poker player, and she used this to her advantage. So I had a professional poker player, Jillian. I remember her name, oddly enough. Um, <laughs> and she would talk about how she uses the attractiveness of her as like almost like a sucker punch, like a distraction. And mm -hmm. it would be part of how she would gamble and try to get attention. So all that to say, could it be that dudes are maybe trying to like peacock flex oh. and like impress <laughs> around you and they're like trying almost too hard? Could that be Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, and that's another funny thing about getting older is um, uh, when I was younger and I would walk into a green room and all the guys who had been joking and laughing before would go silent <laughs> and then sit in silence for like the entire time we were in there or they would only talk to each other and they would never involve me. They would never talk to me. Oh. I would be like, oh, it's because they like hate women. And then later I was like, oh, they're intimidated by me. Right. You know, like they were actually, which is still kind of another form of sexism. And it sucks that they wouldn't just be like one of our peers, but they were like one of our peers that we want to have sex with. So everybody fall apart. You know, like that also still sucked a lot of times. Treat her like shit and so I, she wants to get with us. That's a classic way to get women. Yeah. Ignore her. Women love that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I understand what she's saying. And it's a weird thing as a woman and as an attractive woman because um, it's, uh, you know, for women, a lot of your power comes from that. And it's shitty, shitty because it's not power. It's power adjacent, adjacent. It's how you get close to power is you be attractive enough that men will let you in to the circle for a little bit until you age out and then fuck off, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, man. Um, and that, but I definitely, like, I almost in a way I kind of feel a little robbed because 
um, at my hottest, I was just <laughs> so uncomfortable with being hot. And like, as a, I was like a, I was a very gnarly looking kid and like I had severe acne and like thick glasses. And I don't think I ever like realized I was like hot until I was like 37 and um, and then one day I was like, oh, and like this whole time people have been really using this like super because like there's like people have joked with me like you fucked your top to the you fucked your way to the top of comedy. And I'm like, I literally just like got sexually harassed my way to the low middle. Like At if I Boise? if I had known <laughs> in, yeah, Boise? <laughs> in Boise, I know. And I'm like, if I had known, like if I had at the time known that like known my power, known that that was a power that I could like really uh, use, I would, be, I would probably be a lot further, but I, would you I really thought that, that we, I thought we were being funny and I thought it was really important to be funny and to like, like, I thought like once I got really funny and was like undeniable, men would then like treat me as an equal. Just respect the work. Yeah. And just respect the work. Yeah. And that's not what happened. <laughs> Um, just a side note, cause I feel guilty. Her name's Kelsey. Um, she's guest 126. Um, who does Okay. The, I'll look it up. Yeah. Who does penis CK. It came back to me as I had a second to think about it. Um, and it, okay. was, it, um, it was just an interesting twist. Um, yeah. it, it brings up a point, not that you did fuck your way to the top, but it's something where I'm curious, like, would it be wrong? I've been trying to get a couple of um, I believe just strippers <laughs> on the podcast because I follow them on Twitter and they're so fucking insightful with their like right to work. It's my body. This is how come we don't have like unionized basic rights. And it's like a labor market. It's like, what would you rather have me be in like a dangerous situation and try to sell for sex? Why can't I like, why, if I have this only fans allow stuff. And they're really, really good points that I've never spoken to somebody who tries to use their body in that way. Like, why isn't it like a step above modeling? So I'm like, I would be curious, like how serious are you about like, if you to realize that, is that something worth using? Like, would you think you- Well, it's it? funny because morally, I have no issue at all with sex work. I actually think that sex work can be really healing for the people who do it, for the people who use it, you know, and it can be I, I, like under the right circumstances. Like it's on, like I have a lot of uh, friends who are strippers and I have a lot of friends who are burlesque dancers. And also my ex-husband's father owned legal brothels in Nevada. So I've been around a oh, lot shit. of sex workers and it's such a business. Like there's, when you're behind the scenes at all, it is like so much of the like glamour in the sex is and the tits is just, it's out of it. Like it's accounting, you know? Um, I think like, I, you know, I've dabbled in, um, exhibitionism and voyeurism and BDSM to say dabbled means I'm, have, was deep within the community at one time. Um, but at the same time, I think as a, as a comedian, I honestly would have be, I would right now even be more willing to do that kind of work and get famous for it or whatever, if I didn't know 100% intrinsically that it would devalue me in the eyes of the men I work with. And, and I know that because like some of my female comedian friends started doing OnlyFans work at the beginning of COVID mm -hmm. and watching the way men started treating them after they became sex workers has been not shocking because I think we all were like, yeah, that makes sense. But still, still kind of like heart, heart wrenching a little and watching and, and my own experience with men is that you kind of have three roles with men typically that you can be. You can be a mom, you can be a, a sex object, 
Or if you're really, really, really lucky, you get to be a buddy. And But like buddy sometimes takes years to get to. It sometimes takes the fact that you're like a lesbian and completely non-sexual in any way, you know? Like it gets, it's hard to get to buddy. And I don't have, you know, outside of some really good men that I'm very good friends with, um, I don't have the buddy role with a lot of the men I work with because they're sexually attracted to me. So I automatically go to sex object and that's how they always will treat me. So I think for me, the reason I didn't, and I mean, and I have leaned into sex object. I mean, I didn't fuck my way to the top, but I have used my body to promote and to get attention and to do those things plenty. Because like I said, we have so few avenues to power as a woman that like, yeah, you're sometimes like, well, fuck it. I'm going to use what God gave me and, and not feel bad about it. But I haven't, there's been like a line for me that I haven't crossed in a lot of ways, not because of my own morality, but because I don't want to deal with like the kind of exhaustive consequences of that. And there was a part where, and God, I don't know, my mind's racing because you bring up so many good points <laughs> and I, it's really fun to listen to you. And I think of like 30 different things every time you say something. <laughs> but at one point you were talking and I started giggling, oh, about your acne. And I was watching part of your special and you're like, we are givers. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That's a good joke. I like that. good fucking yeah. line. And it, it just makes me think like the, the moralistic aspect is like, yeah, why not be able to use these things that you have. And in your comedy, you clearly have no qualms about like highlighting body and deal like the fucking beaver in the background and all <laughs> these things. And it's interesting. I'm wondering how you get to like the do not cross line. It does it come to as simple as like, this will limit my options in the eyes of my peers and I want to be respected or is it something else? I think these these days, it's more, um, it's funny because my, my therapist for like 10 years has been like, you know, we have a, a zipper on the inside too, meaning like other people don't just get to unzip you. They don't get to just like take from you. Like you have a zipper on your inside and you get to decide how much you give. And I feel like it's kind of that, honestly, like I, I feel like in the last, this wasn't always true, but in the last like four or five years or so, something about my body started feel really sacred just to me where I was like I'm not sharing this with anybody that I don't really know deserves it and I I think some of that came from like realizing like oh am I hot <laughs> like you know like so maybe some of it was that but I think also some of it was just like learning to live with being a public person which came as you know uh kind of a shock you know I went from being like a stay-at-home mom and a housewife and uh you know, like seeing like four people a month to starting to kind of become like, you know, mini baby famous and having to deal with people wanting more from you all the time. And I think that that's kind of where it comes from for me. For me these days more is like less the judgment of the men around me because I've started to realize that their judgment is impaired. Um, even a lot of the men I like, I'm like, wow, you have so much work to do and I don't know that you're ever going to do it. Mm. And um, I stopped like... I don't think anymore I would do it because of lost opportunity. I think now it's more just like, I only show my naked body to people who are like really dope, <laughs> who are really nice to me. And uh, really that's who gets to see it, see it. And that's it, you know? I um, So also in your special, by the way, um, special education teacher, not super um, 
not with autistic or severely disabled, but more like learning disabled kids. But I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. so I'm a middle school teacher. Oh, um, cool. So That's amazing. And apparently I get to go to any of your comedy shows for free. If Absolutely. Around, right? Absolutely. Forever. <laughs> yeah. I was super excited to hear. But I bring that up to say like my daughter just got into sixth grade. So now she's in the school that I've been in for like eight years. And I'm oh, Mr. Well. O'Grady and I have a reputation and I coach <laughs> basketball, you know, and like I, yeah. I float around to classes. I'm also the, like the reading specialist. So like I'm pretty known, right? And now she walks in and in my mind, I'm like, fuck, dude, I can't like I can't ruin her life. Like, what are people going to say about me? How does that affect her? I hope she's confident enough to like be her own and not worry if somebody talks shit about me that she's got to whatever conform. And now then I'm watching your special and I'm like, oh, my God, what would I do if this was my mom? (laughs) And like the Internet was around. And I'm curious how you balance that with like kids your kids friends being able to google you and like how open you are because you must be hella hella open with your kids yeah absolutely like we're very open it was really important to me as a parent my my family is very secretive and everything was always like whispered and we're not religious or anything we're just swedish and everything is like whispered and (laughs) you never have a conversation about anything and it was really important with my kids to just be really open and honest about things and so when they've asked me like mom have you tried drugs i've just been like yeah and here was my experience and like i've just always sort of trusted them as people to make this their i since they were little i've been like this is your life I'm going to guide you as much as possible, but like the choices at the end of the day of you are yours. Um, I do think the comedian thing is sort of funny with that because like a good example is they were with my nephew um, in his car and he was playing, I don't remember exactly which joke, but some joke where I was talking about giving a blow job. He just kept like repeat, hitting repeat on the joke while they were stuck in the car with him and they were like screaming, but they also were laughing. They thought it was like a hilarious prank. Um, and so I think like, I think, you know, one thing I always do is if I have a joke that I'm going to do about them, I run the joke by them first. I make sure they're comfortable with every aspect, which actually, as I've, as they've gotten older, I've started to be more like, well, I don't know, like how much can a child consent to really, Uh, you know, they don't know the consequences of that joke. So I've had some aspects of being like, I don't know if I actually fucked that up or if that's okay. On the one hand, I'm like, well, it, guess what? It paid our rent. So (laughs) I don't know what to tell you guys. Uh, but on the other hand, they've also never come to me and said later, like that now embarrasses me. Like they think it's funny and they don't really care. And um, and I also always pay them $100 for the joke because they wrote it typically. You know what I mean? Like it's something they said that was funny. And then I'm just like, listen to this funny thing I stole from my kid, you know? So I always try to like credit them with the funny thing that they said. Um, and a lot of times, actually, I'll take things that I know they like might have found from when they were littler, found embarrassing, and I'll make it a story about myself instead. So it's not embarrassing to them. So I really, I did, have done my best to be, I um, I feel that one thing for me is that comedy f- needs to feel really consensual. Um, I had years ago, in the very beginning of my comedy career, I was in an audience and a woman I knew who I had been good friends with, whose uh, boyfriend who was a comic had sexually assaulted me. And she got up and told that story with me in the audience, named my name, told the details of my assault, uh, like said that I had facility, you know, like I deserved it because I was wearing of what I was wearing. Really traumatizing uh, thing to have happen. 
But in a weird way, I'm sort of grateful that it did because it very early in my career made me think about consent and think about like when you're telling somebody else's story, that's kind of a sacred thing, you know, like you have a responsibility to that person to get the facts right, to make sure you're telling it in a way. I mean, this doesn't apply to Trump, say, okay? Like <laughs> if you're talking about a public official, um, I think who, who's done a massive amount of damage to humanity, I kind of let him like, you can say that person drinks piss and you don't actually know if they drink piss. I kind of let that fall away for like Bleach. somebody who's done a massive amount of damage. But for a person that is just not a public figure, just a person, yeah. I feel like you really kind of owe that person some dignity so in the joke. That's the, and I, I know I'm know nothing about like the industry or whatever, but like the consent part immediately, Chris Rock, Will Smith, like sure to, to get slapped. But at the same time, you're like, you are the public figure, right? You did get all dressed up. And like Will Smith, I think kind of acknowledged that like, hey man, when you're a public figure, you kind of get shit on and that's just part of it. But there are certain lines and it has yeah. to be so delicate to figure out what that line is because humor should be edgy. I think that's what makes humor, like it has to be unique. You have to push it back. I mean, I don't, I don't really agree with the humor. It has to be edgy thing. I mean, I think it's funny because I think like maybe people consider my humor edgy because I talk about sex. Um, edgy to me means making people laugh because you're saying, you're talking about things that they would never admit publicly about themselves, but that they do and is relatable. That to me is edgy. Like when yeah. fucking Ali Wong talked about how whenever you scratch your crotch, you immediately sniff your fingers. I was like, that is the most relatable joke I've heard in 10 years. Because <laughs> literally every woman, I don't know if men do it. I have no idea. I think your hands are in your pants too much for it to matter. So I don't think it's true, but I was We're like, that's so true. And like, that's something like, is it's embarrassing to admit. And that's what I think comedy was meant to do is to, remind you of your humanness and to make it okay to be human. And um, I'm actually, like, I, I haven't really commented on this a lot because I feel like um, this is a situation that is, like, uh, between the black community in some ways. Like, that's between Chris Rock and Will Smith what happened. I thought Chris Rock took that hit like a fucking king. Dude. I thought Will Will Smith was right to pop him. I also think it was just a fucking slap. Let's calm down. Maybe it's because I have three sons, but I was like, so much slapping happens in my house on a day-to-day -day basis. I was like, that wasn't even a punch. It was not even a punch. You know, it was just a smack. And I'm I'm also like, the idea that we comedians, we have this immutable right to say whatever we want on stage without consequence is so stupid to me. I have been uh, charged and harassed and followed out to my car and docks. Like, I have faced massive, massive like consequences for talking about abortion, you know? I just think... I think usually what people are doing when they face a consequence, which is usually just usually just people being like, hey, we didn't like that. And that's yeah, supposedly right. cancel culture. Like Chris Rock got popped in the face. Uh, and maybe if that makes people be like, I'm going to be a little more careful about joking about disability. I don't hate that. I don't hate the idea of people being like, oh, right, this, like, I'm not in a bubble up here. I'm not sacred. Like, I am still talking to people who can pop me in the mouth. I've never forgotten that for a moment on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just my upbringing or who I am, but I'm always very, very aware of how vulnerable I am up there. Could be because I'm 5'2". <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Will Smith looked like he towered, just as a side note. Like, I... The difference in size between Will Smith and Chris Rock when he walked up there, I, I can't believe Chris Rock took it and then came up with a line of like, you know, I'm Will honestly Smith like, the shit out of me. I really, I like, really thought, that's a large, moment. I don't know. 
this is probably toxic masculinity for me, but a person who can take a hit and not be a fucking man or woman and yeah. not be a fucking baby about it yeah, is so hot to me. That's hot. Like being able to be popped in the jaw and then be like, all right, I'm going to keep doing my job. I was like, yeah. that's, that's, I hated his joke. Uh, I thought it was, un- I thought it was cruel and unfair and like layered with a tapestry of like, you know, racism against black women and sexism and like the hair stuff is real touchy with black women leave it alone you know like don't ever touch it and i just i felt like he kind of knew what he was doing and he took the but he that's why he took the hit is because he knew he crossed a line he got popped in the mouth and he was like wow dude anyway moving on like i felt like you saw an interaction where they both knew what happened and they both were like whatever and it and had moved on I like those kind of interactions. I think I feel like safer in an action, an interaction where somebody's like, "You fucked up in the moment," instead of like Holding later, like in. writing a think piece about it. Yeah, no, no <laughs> doubt. And then it's like some weird grudge, or all of a sudden you're like, "Hey, yeah. man, how come you don't return my text?" Oh, six it, weeks ago at a barbecue, I pissed you off at some comment I made. Yeah, and you never confronted me to let me apologize so we yeah. can heal, kind of a thing. Like, tell me in the moment. Tell me in the moment that I fucked up. And I can decide right then and there for myself how to deal with it. You know what I mean? If I owe an amends right there or if uh, if I'm like, no, I'm going to stand by it. Yeah, you know, right. like, I don't know. I just, I felt like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I tweeted today that like, if you saw that slap, like I saw a bunch of different comedians and Judd Apatow and stuff being like, that was so dangerous. You know, that was like, that was so terrible. It was so awful. And I was like, if that is what you think, if that slap strikes you as dangerous or terrifying, then you are a youngest sibling right there. I am 100% sure that you were the baby of your family and you grew up being like, mom, he hit me. And your brother's like, I tapped you on the head. Again, maybe that's because I have three sons and they are just at at each other like wild dogs all the time. So I'm kind of used to just like boy on boy smacking as part of a communication style. Not not to be super graphic, but just middle school basketball coach. Like if I leave that locker room for more than two <laughs> minutes before the game, like it's it's this weird dance I do with like these yes. 12 to 14 year old boys getting kind of undressed and like doing like, dude, I'm not trying to watch you. But if I leave you for more than a minute, all of a sudden there are things in toilets, urinal cakes yeah. get brought out, deodorants getting sprayed in people's <laughs> eyes. Like, why are you putting Axe body wash on, dude? You're about to sweat. Like nobody cares, but like people are getting to pants. All of a sudden people can't find their under. And you're like, fellas, it was 40. All I did was go give the official the game ball. And like, I come back in and it looks oh my God. like Mardi Gras was in here. I don't get it. And it is a weird thing when you get a bunch of dudes together, something about yeah. their, it's always like a pissing contest. They just want to beat the yeah. shit out of smack, each smack, other. Smack, 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 smack. Yeah. And, and like. I love that you're a middle school teacher and coach because I don't even have to explain to you that energy. And I know, like, I'm not saying, like, it's genetic or it's biological. Like, maybe your boys are, like, you know, you're raised in such a way that you end up expressing yourself through violence. Yeah, like, maybe maybe that is more grooming than it is who men actually are. Um, And that sucks, like, if that's true. But what I see is not, it's not even aggression. It's literally, like, puppies, you know, like yeah. just like puppies just biting each other all the time. Like yeah. I, my kids are 18. Uh, they're about to be 19, 17, and 14. And when they're in the backseat, it's like they're still 10. Yeah. 
You know, it's like there's still five, eight, and ten. And they're just like, punch, 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 smack, smack, smack. And then somebody, I'm like, somebody's going to end up crying. Somebody always ends up crying, you know? So, yeah, I guess it's possible that I'm a little numb to it. But when I saw that happen, I was kind of just like, oh, none of my business. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) Next. Yeah. Yeah, now it, it was... So I guess part of why I was thinking about that too, talking about consent, and I've had a, um, I got a couple other comedians going up, and one of the guys is a comedian in New York, and he'll do like the interaction with the audience while he's doing stand-up, especially like if the cocktail tables are nearby, you know, like I guess some comedians have... Crowd work? You mean yeah. like he's... T- yeah, sure. I, I yeah, mean, and I, I do that. I didn't know if I was allowed to use the industry term. You know, oh, please. <laughs> being an outsider. But yeah, and like, but that's a weird line of consent. But then I wonder, like, do you as an audience just consent? Much like if you go to a major league baseball game, you're basically consenting. If a ball hits me, it's my fault. I should be paying attention at all times. So like if you go to a comedy club and you sit front row, are you immediately consenting that whatever I am is open game? Whether yeah. it's a toupee, glasses, I'm with a younger lady, older lady, weight, hair, like is anything on the table? And I was wondering if that's part of, as you were like coming up doing crowd work. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not. I know for, for some comedians, they're like, you're here. I'm going to make fun of you. And some comedians are like very, very good at it and very good at doing it away in a way that makes um, the audience member feel included instead of mocked. You know what I mean? And what I kind of do is um, I think you can usually tell the people that are on board with being crowd work a lot of times because they're people hate hecklers, but honestly, the people who want to be part of the show are more vocal. They're saying things back to you. They're replying. They're laughing in a way to try to get your attention. Um, I also will gauge, like if I start, start doing crowd work, like let's say I start asking a couple something, if they look uncomfortable, I move on. You know, like if they're like, oh, no, 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 um, I just move on. If they uh, are having fun and they're like laughing and stuff and they clearly want to be part of it. I'm also not, I'm not uh, typically mean unless somebody has already crossed a line. Like if somebody, like um, people were sharing their horror stories today about like hecklers and like there was, I've had that happen a million times, but like one time I had a guy who just kept yelling through my whole that he was very drunk. Sex. He just kept, that's all. He just kept playing sex <laughs> through the whole thing. And I finally had to like, because it's distracting to the rest of the crowd and it kind of ruins their uh, enjoyment of the show. So a lot of times yeah. you have to deal with that person and you have to deal with them either like in a harsh enough way to shut them up or to bounce them, you know, and or, or, sorry, go ahead. No, I, and that's what kind of sucks about Zoom is it's hard to do the whole like, oh yeah, yeah you're fine. But I'm curious because I I never thought about that is like, is part of that on the club? Like, shouldn't there be a bouncer yes. that's like grabs yes. a dude yeah. by the neck and is like, shut the fuck up or get the fuck yes. out kind of a thing? Or is that just an industry norm where the clubs are like, yo, go up there and take the heat? I mean, it's, it differs club to yeah, club. Yeah, not that you really, can speak for everybody. I know that's such yeah. a weird way. But to do also it. like good clubs, yeah, they have a bouncer, and if somebody is crossing the line from fun to distracting the rest of the crowd, they will bounce that person. And that, as a comedian, is such a relief. Um, the club that used to be here in Boise, my home club, for a lot of years, 
um, they would either have a bouncer who was great or they just kind of had like a guy who worked the door who was, you were on your own. He was not coming out to help you no matter what <laughs> happened. And so you would end up having to police your own shows, which is exhausting. Right. Um, having to like police at the same time that you're just trying to do your routine, especially if you're trying to like really practice something to record it. Um, but I also, as I got more experience, like I just, a lot of times, a lot of times it's just sort of like letting go and being in the moment. Like once I had this table in the front at the Friday late show who was very, very drunk and they had been heckling my openers so bad that when she got off stage, she was crying and she was really upset. And so I went, I went in and I was like ready to draw blood. Like I was going to walk this table full of dudes and I was going to be so fucking mean. And then when I got up there, the guy who had been heckling was like, so drunk his eyes were closed and he was covered in french fries and because he was just so drunk he was missing his mouth with the fry every time and i just started laughing so hard and it was sort of this epiphany where i was like here i thought these were these like bullies and they're just dummies you know they're just like they're like 23 year olds who can't hold their fucking alcohol so i just spent my whole set sort of like dude it was six getting... ipas okay they're like 6.3s <laughs> they're really strong <laughs> but i just like spent my set kind of getting to Double know them hopped. and and i try to i try to i try to approach everybody in a crowd with compassion cuz i feel like we are all there for kind of the same reason my job is to bring people together to help people forget about you know being human for a minute um, obviously, like occasionally, if somebody's just being gross and sexist, I will just be mean and be like, "Get the fuck out of my show." But but typically, I will try to like bring them back into the fold. Yeah. You know, be like, "Hey, remember you're part of a society. This is a social contract we're doing here." You know, <laughs> <Right>? well, <laughs> I do my best, dude. That's the thing, and maybe it's the coach in me, but I'm and I get the frustration in a competitive environment if you think your kid's getting fucked over to be upset at a coach, right? Like I, I, I do get that. Like I've fucked up and I've done stupid things and I, I should get yelled at because I'm responsible for certain things on the court. If I tell you to score at the wrong basket, you should make fun of me. I, I need to own that. But I don't think like you go with that competitive mentality of I'm gonna own this moment when you buy a ticket for a, whatever to see an open mic or to go yeah. to a comedy show. And so I've always been baffled by a heckler's mentality, like, do you, does it start off like you take a date there and then all of a sudden you know you're not getting lucky tonight and you're like, well, I'm gonna fucking deflect this anger and disappointment <laughs> and I'm gonna ruin yeah, her night too. Maybe. Like, is that what happens? I maybe I think like, I think you have a couple kinds of hecklers. Um, one is just excited. And I always let those ones go. Uh, you have people who they're just having such a good time. They're like forgetting that they're, not at home alone. That's you such know? a positive spin to start with. That's yeah, like such just, a very positive spin. I love yeah, that. I just think sometimes people are having a good time and they, they're just like, they're caught up in the moment. And especially like culturally, you know, like different rooms are more talkative than others, you know? And so you just kind of have to be prepared for the fact that sometimes you do have to just like um, bring that person in and let them be part of things and include them. You know, you've got the girl, the drunk girl who's like, what? yeah girl go for it and yeah. you're the, you know the bachelorette party of boy girls that are just like you're the best and you have to like be kind and be like when you fucking went like my people pumpkin spice like like i don't know how much like i should say of the special but the fact that you were like the setup of my people i just cracked the fuck up. It was just yeah i mean i own them you yeah. can't you can't uh, not own your your people, and that's those are my girls. Is yeah. 
drunk white girls with like a pumpkin spice latte and some high boots. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it was just like, no, no. it's funny. Like, as you mentioned shit, I was just thinking back to the special. I'm like, dude, that thing fucking, you know, you attached <laughs> to different moments. I was like, that fucking thing hit me when that line in there. Yeah. And so. then the other kind of heckler I think that you have is, um, I think, like you said, somebody who's dealing with anger about something on the outside and um, typically, I mean, it's weird because it used to be uh, like more unrelated. Now it's Trump. (laughs) Now that guy is always mad that Trump is not the president. And it's like weird because, yeah, it's like become razor sharp political. Whereas before it was like, that guy's mad because his daughter didn't talk to him. You know, (laughs) like he was... He's mad for a lot of reasons, but like those guys have become like hyper political. And like you, I I have started a joke that is non-political, like about my kids. And somebody would be like, go back to California, you liberal bitch. And I'm like, how, how did you already decide I'm a liberal bitch? You know, like, how did you already go there? And that I think is, is more, uh, that might be more misogyny. Like sometimes men are really mad that there's a woman on stage, period. And, and that's, not super common. I think even though a lot of men are like, I don't like female comedians usually, but then they're like laughing and they have a good time. They just don't want to admit it. You know, they don't want to tell their friends. What a great backhanded compliment. You know, most women are horrible comedians, but tonight was good. (laughs) That is such a common one. I'll be in a handshake line after a show and like six guys will say that to me. I don't usually like women comedians, but you're hilarious. I was, I was really surprised. You're really smart. And I'm like, and I, how I deal with that is I just start talking to their wife. <laughs> I just think you don't even exist. I don't even, like I said, like uh, if you haven't gotten rid of your deprogramming, I don't have time for that. Yeah. I don't have the energy for that shit. So yeah, it's, but I think like how you deal with a mean heckler is very different. You know, how I do it is it's very similar to being a dominatrix. You just keep your fucking boot on their neck, you know, and you just, you're relentless and you just are like, it's a, it's honestly, oh my God, it's so similar to being a teacher right. because you're, when you're in class, if you let that kid take oh, over, you're toast, right? And if you engage and like, you got to realize like who has the authority at the moment. Oh, that's right. I got the fucking mic in the spotlight. And like, yeah. as a teacher, you're like, wait, my name's on the door. Motherfucker, this is my classroom. You walk into my house, <laughs> insulting yeah. me, right? Like who would yeah. take that? Somebody walked into your living room. So yeah, that's a good mentality. Is it? I actually thought of two things. I don't know which one to ask because I normally forget about my second questions once I ask the first one. (laughs) Um, But is it, was it difficult for you to be, and this might be a sexist question and feel free to slap me, but like as a female, 5'2", does the size thing trying to check dudes who are being aggressive, was that hard to get the confidence or it just came natural to you? Well, it's funny because I think like on stage, I'm a very different person. Like I, it's still me. It's still the same. I don't do a persona, but the second I hit that stage, I'm so confident. And in fact, a lot of times when people come and meet me in the meet and greet line, they're like, you're so little. Like I thought you were like six foot tall up there. And it's an authority thing. Like people think I'm really big and then they meet me and they're like, I didn't have to listen to you. What the hell? You know, like you're so tiny. (laughs) You couldn't have shut uh, me up. (laughs) I could have slapped you for sure. But, but yeah, I think, no, I mean, I've been, you know, short my whole life and, um, and I, but I'm scrappy. Like I, I have six siblings and I'm the smallest of six siblings. So I, and also I'm a step kid. So I have that like runty step kid energy. Uh, Like I'm going to get this attention however I can, you know? So like, uh, 
once I, once I hit the stage, I'm not nervous or I'm not, you know, I'm always just perfectly confident up there. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I don't think that's ever been much of an issue off stage. Oh my God. Like the meet and greet line. I'm a wreck. <laughs> Like yeah. people touching me and I have to like, I've actually stopped doing meet and greets because of COVID and it's been amazing because like, I really do want to meet, do meet and greets because I think it's the polite thing to thank people for coming to the show. But it gives me, I have such social anxiety and actually, uh, John Roy, who's one of my favorite comics, who's so funny. He and I, he was up in Coeur d'Alene when I did a show and afterward he was watching, it was a really, it was a big show. And afterward he was watching the meet and greet line, which was required. And, um, he told me, he's like, I've never seen anybody get touched that much in my life. Like every single guy that came through the line touched your back, touched your shoulder, touched your arms. Oh. And he was like, are you okay? And I was like, I mean, I feel a little rubbed raw. You know, I feel like one of the starfish in the fucking touch tank at the aquarium <laughs> where I'm like, I need a break. But I hadn't really thought about it till then. And then I was like, yeah, that does like kind of feel weird to be touched that much by so many strangers and um, but now I don't even, now I don't do meet and greets at all because of COVID. I'm like, because of the disease, but really it's just because I don't want to be touched by strangers. Do you think the touches, and I, I don't want to, but it's always fun to speculate about random strangers' um, intentions. Is it the like drunk, happy overtouching, or do you think there are like sexual tones about? Oh, sexual tones. Yeah? I mean, the women touch me because they're so excited. The women like are like, but they'll a lot of mostly well they'll be like can I hug you, um, oh. and they're just so excited and they'll like hug me or like take pictures with me and be like very squeezy, and um, and this is obviously like not all the men there are plenty of men who hover hand me Keanu Reeves style and I appreciate that so much or who just take a picture or like ask for a hug, um, but yeah mostly I think that out of four hundred people who touched me in line I would say twenty five. To thirty percent of those are men who touched me because they were close enough to cop a feel, and because I'm in a meet and greet line working for a, a resort, um, and they kind of know that like I have to be on my best behavior. I'm at work, you know. I can't be like, I can't slap them, which yeah. now I would weirdly because like, I, like I said, COVID has been kind of like weird for me that way where like I've all of a sudden stopped putting up with a lot of behavior that I would have before because I was taking it, you know? You know, it'd be awesome. Do you, um, did you, do your boys ever do the cup check thing? Is that a thing out in Idaho? A cup check thing. Cup check. So, and I don't know how graphic this is, but the dudes, for some reason, you know how you have like the, you whip up the towels and you can like, and snap sure, somebody. Yeah. So the dudes for a while would walk by and you just take your fingers and you flick it at the crotch and you're like, cup check. And it stings like a <laughs> motherfucker and it's paralyzing. So in my head, I'm like, what if you got oh my like God, yeah. rated acrylic nails and like this dude like starts rubbing cup and he's like, cup check and just For real. smile. And they take the picture yeah. while they're like hunched over catching their breath. Yeah. But like you need I'm, something None of my like kids that. do that because none of my kids are athletic. So <laughs> that must be why they're nerds. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just but, grew up in a very weird circle. Maybe no, I think I think boys tend to do. I mean, I I think girls do similar things, but obviously not uh, punch each other in the nuts the as much. Yeah, right. You know, Sensi yeah, <laughs> super sensitive areas. But not like you. You. It's it. It sucks, man. And it's something. Like what? So in schools, we get a lot of training about the white privilege, and I, I struggle with like the white guilt aspect of like, man, I grew up fucking poor. I was in a trailer, you know, like I was on welfare growing up, and I feel like 
now I'm middle class and I've made it and I'm like kind of almost like expected to feel like shit in some ways. That's how I walk away from these trainings. But something I do realize is like there's also a lot of it and I'm not a huge guy, 5'10", 175. Like I'm, I'm a male though and I don't really feel too often like insecure. If someone were like, if I'm feeling touched like that, I, I feel like I'd be okay. And it's something where like people you should have a cup check option. <laughs> like motherfuckers yeah. shouldn't have the option to get a little feely, twirl your hair, get to the low of your back or whatever, just cause you're trying to feed your family. Like there sucks, man. It fucking sucks that it's like that. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny cause like how I think of the white privilege thing is I, so I have two black cousins and I watched very intimately. I mean, we had similar financial circumstances and all of these things, but I watched them struggle with things that like I couldn't even really comprehend. And I think that I wish that they would name white privilege something else because what I think it is is like it's not about what you had or have in your life. It's about what you never had to think about. And like you said, like you never had to think about someone grabbing you, someone, you know, touching you in a way that like you don't want. And I think like that's male privilege, but, but privilege makes it sound like you got to have something. And and in a way you did, like you got to feel, men get to feel safe in the world. Yeah, you get to miss out on some sort of feeling. Yeah. Like my stupid husband's always like, oh yeah, when I was backpacking Peru alone, oh, when I slept in the streets of the Philippines because I ran out of money. And I'm like, I could never do any of that. Some women are like, I don't want to go for a jog on a country yeah. road alone. And I'm like, dude, yeah. I do that shit on the normal. I don't even think twice. And they're like, yeah. I've had vans get behind me. And I'm like, what? They were like, yeah, dude, I had to fucking take an L into the woods and I thought I was going to get raped. And you're like, okay, yeah, maybe there is something to being a dude with a beard, right? Yeah. Like that, I, that you can take for granted and maybe you need to have an understanding. That's such a good point. I've never heard anybody, all these trainers, like really think like, eh, maybe like in their think tank, white privilege or male privilege like um, should should we change the privilege thing is there a better way because what do we really want to get at is an understanding right like is an empathy yeah and i think that unfortunately a lot of the ways um because what we know in this country is always it boils down to uh being punitive so a lot of the ways yeah. that we train people about white privilege and male privilege and cis privilege all comes down to like like kind of making people feel bad for doing the wrong thing instead of bringing people in and helping them want to do the right thing. Yeah. And um and I think that's probably because a lot of older white guys made all that training typically like a lot of times uh, indigenous people and black people are like we don't even this isn't even how we want you to teach this this is super harmful you know <laughs> that's such a good point so i think i think uh, i think um it's unfortunate because like i'm watching this whole cancel culture debate kind of pop up around like the will smith chris rock thing and i'm like i i think like we so often miss what could be a very to expand our humanity because we're so worried about maybe having done the wrong thing at some point in our life as a white person, as a man, as whatever, you know? What happens is like, you don't want to be open. And it's something that even fucks with me as a teacher. Cause like part of my contract is about like social media and I, maybe I should read it a lot better since I tried a podcast, but it's like endorsing certain things can be like fireable offenses. 
And it's like, fuck, man, can can we explore an idea? And then who's going to determine whether I've endorsed it? Because I entertain an idea to try to understand it. Does that mean like, do I endorse strippers? Because I want to like talk to a stripper to understand why they do what they do and why they want to feel safe and why, right? Like, and even if you did, like if you were like, I, you know what, I endorse marijuana. sex I think work. pot should be legal, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, yeah. oh my God, you're le- that's illegal right now. It's like, shouldn't I explore the idea? And can I like yeah. land on, wait a minute, they have a lot of good points. So why can't it be legal? You want people to be open. You want to know where people stand and you should be able to like, explore difficult topics with some sort of like sensitivity without the fear of like, fuck man, if I say one wrong word, I'm done. I'm a racist all of a sudden, you know, like it, it's such a weird spot to try to gain. Well, understanding. and I think, I think also maybe people need to let go of this like perfectionism or this fear. Like, like you are a racist. I'm a racist. Everybody, <laughs> everyone, society, has, you're, yeah. we live in a systemically racist society. Like it's, Everybody, I think everybody wants to act like they're walking around being a saint, but like, just like the rest of your life, you can be a better husband, you can be a better dad, you can be a better teacher, like you can always be improving. And I personally think that's the fun part of life. Like I really, maybe this is just because I was always the kind of kid that was like, um, oh, manatees, I have to know everything about that. And I would like read everything I could find on manatees for like a month. And then it was like geckos, you know? But I kind of feel like that about people's experience of the world. And I'm so interested in people's, like knowing how to make life less painful for people, like anybody. And I I don't, you know, for a lot of years, I was really mad at men. And then my, like one day about four years ago, I had this realization that I was like, I'm raising men. Like, how am I going to raise good men while I'm, I'm so angry at men? And I, I needed to like do the work to understand and have empathy for men and like where they're coming from and to see where the patriarchy fucks them up, even if they are so busy blaming it on feminists that they don't notice it themselves, you know, like it really was kind of a, a like an epiphany that I had. Like, I really want to have the empathy for my sons um, that I have for a lot of, you know, the women and non-binary people in my life. And to do that, I'm going to have to forgive men and I'm going to have to. So, you know, you found me initially with a tweet that was like, I'm going to, um, my kids went to their dads for the week. I'm going to listen to Flutewood Mac and be mean on the internet. Yes. But that was partly because I did not realize my, I had my DMs are open and I knew that there was like a message request folder, but I didn't realize, I was like, I'm going to go through all my DMs. And I didn't realize there's like a offensive section of that. Oh. Like I scrolled down finally to like the very bottom and it's like, do you want to see the worst of this stuff? And I was like, sure. And then it was just dicks and dicks and dicks and dicks. I was like, I didn't even know, I didn't even know guys were still sending dicks. Like I thought that was like 2014. I thought we'd all like moved past. What amazing that. air defense technology by Twitter that they just right? filter yeah, that shit I, for you right away. I know. I was like, many have evolved. Nope. The technology has. <laughs> <laughs> Safety protocol. Safety protocol too. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not, I'm not like shocked by that. I don't, it doesn't hurt my, when I was younger, like that stuff used to make me feel really like violated and awful. Um, I'm, I'm a little calloused to it these days now, but um, so those were the men I was being mean to. Uh, but, and I actually not being mean to them because most of them, that's why they send me their dick pic is they want me to make fun of their dick. So yeah. they've even taken that away from me. It's a, it's a kink thing apparently. And I'm like, What's a girl to do? <laughs> that is so foreign to me with, and I, 
I don't know. Did you check to see were any of the accounts real or are they like burner accounts? Because to me, I'm like, yo, if my name is on this, I'm really okay with I'm the dude that sent a dick pic to a comedian who tweeted a joke. Like I'm cool with being known as that. That scares the shit out of me. Like I never want to yeah. have that much wine where I'm like 1.30 in the morning debating. It could be kind of funny, you know? Yeah. Like, I think... I think attaching your name to it is part of it. Like I literally get offers from men that are like, if I send you a picture of my dick with their main account, will you put me on blast on Twitter and I'll pay you and I'll pay you. I want like their king. I don't understand. I don't, I'm not king shaming honestly. Cause like if women are doing this for money, good for them. That's great. If somebody's paying their rent with this fine, but, um, nobody's offered me enough money to do it yet. Like some guy was like, I'll pay you 50 bucks. I was like, I make $1,500 an hour sometimes. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing, showing your dick to my friends for $50. You know, like 50% of a Bitcoin bitch. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I don't think so. But uh, yeah. And, and some of them want me to like, they'll like, you know, be like, do you think this looks small? This is small. And then my, what's my only response. That's not going to be part of their masturbation routine. Nope. It looks great. Looks really normal. It looks like a completely regular average. penis thing of beauty. Good for you, you know. Square so, in the middle of a bell curve. Yeah, <laughs> really average. Nobody <laughs> likes to hear that. So, <laughs> actually, yeah, quite unexceptional. Just, just yeah, plain. Just, just regular, oh, small, um, but you know. I can't believe. I can't believe like that's that's part of your norm. Like, how do you balance trying to be, because obviously you got to have some sort of social media thing if you're like an entertainer, right? Like I'm, I'm nowhere mm-hmm. near that level. Like social media freaks me out. And it's part of just going through college, social media is starting to come up. So I'm 40. So like Facebook's kind of a big deal while I'm in my twenties. Right. And it like, don't act like you skipped my space. We got, don't act like I you actually did, believe it or not. <laughs> Went, you did. Oh yeah. wow. <laughs> so the only thing I found on yeah, I got on MySpace. I didn't get on MySpace. I learned about MySpace when I started coaching my first year of teaching and kids were like started talking shit online. And I had to deal with it. And oh. I was like, dude, you don't think fucking someone's going to see this if it's on the internet like it was <coughs> basic to me. But like in college, they were so they beat us over the head about like don't post a picture where you're drinking. You know, don't tag yourself somewhere. Don't like something. And I would like freak out like fuck social media. So I didn't get on it honestly until I started the podcast. And like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with negativity. So I don't know how to balance. Like, how do you try to even balance? Let me use this. Let me engage to grow an audience and let me deal with these fucking haters. I mean, it was rough. It was a rough learning curve for me because in the beginning I was like, Oh, this, you know, I have, I'll, I'll just like post jokes and like pictures and it'll be fun. And then, you know, and then I would like do a podcast and a bunch of guys would be like, they send me sex stuff or be like, I'm going to come murder you and your kids, bitch. You know? And it was like, I was not prepared to be a public person in the beginning. Like I was really jarred by all that. Um, What's it and pretty real? naive. No, no, not to cut you off, but like, did you take that as a legit? legitimate threat or was it more like boogeyman oh yeah it just sucks that I might run into you um it was kind of a mix like um sometimes I would be like 
uh, whatever, this guy's just, he's, God knows where he lives and he's just yeah, blowing see, off steam. I guess, but yeah. there were other guys, like there was a guy who uh, lived in Denver who would make multiple accounts and he harassed me and stalked me for years and like would send me screenshots of my address and shit like that, like scary oh, stuff. Wow. And there were, there are guys who have harassed me online who show up at my shows. That's part of the reason like somebody got slapped on stage. I don't give a fuck. Like men who have harassed me for years show up at my shows and text me, I'm waiting for you in the parking lot. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a little numb to you got slapped on stage. I'm like, yeah, this is a dangerous fucking job. Like, I don't know what to tell you. At least you got slapped by Will Smith, you know? Yeah. I've got some fucking guy named Jeff who's <laughs> making my life hell. Um, and like, you know, in the beginning, I don't laugh everything off. Like, I got rape threats against my um, kids one time that was, it was really, like, uh, one time I did... Sam Roberts show in um, New York. And uh, he asked me about, this is before Trump was president. He asked me what I thought about him. He was just running. And I was like, he seems like a, you know, a bozo, blah, blah, blah. I hate his politics, yeah, whatever. No fucking chance. And, nope. Like, uh, I'm sorry, but like the flashback, I remember having those conversations where they're like 20 yeah. fucking Republicans. And you're like, yeah. what the fuck? I guess he's got, got like a show coming up. Good publicity for him. And then at 16, yeah. you're like, no fucking chance. And then 10. I'm sorry, yeah. but yeah, like that was such a weird time in life. Yeah, and everything was kind of like bubbling, I think is the best way to describe it. Like things things were weird. And I don't, you're a basketball guy, so maybe you'll remember, but like some guy had just gotten fired for saying nappy-headed hoes. Um, oh, I don't know who. Oh my God, that was, was that, was that the Joe, I can't remember if it was the political commentator Cup of Joe or something like that. No, he was a basketball, he was an ESPN guy, I think. I don't know. And okay. he like made, about women's basketball, he made a very racist and offensive comment and he got fired and they asked me online about Trump and then they asked me if I thought this guy should have been fired. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's 2016. Like we're we should not, do that not saying shit like that. And like, he didn't like lose his life. He got fired from his radio show. So who gives so a shit? Don and Imus is fired for Don calling Imus. Rutgers women basketball yes. team. Yes. That's who it was. And yeah. Apparently and also said jigaboos. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Oh my God. Like, yeah. And dude, if I said, what? it's, I said it was horribly offensive. He knew what he was saying. He is clearly an old bigot. Fucking bounce his ass. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Like, oh no, what's basketball going to do without Don Imus? I like, whatever. He, they'll live, you know? Yeah. Um, and before we even finished, the producer was like, hey, don't, don't look at your Twitter. Don't get on Twitter. And I was like, why? And he was like, don't don't get on Twitter. I would say for like a week or so, um, and also like have somebody walk you back to your hotel tonight. And I was like, and I was just like, I don't even know what you mean. And then I got on and I had like hundreds of messages from guys like because I had said uh, that someone should be fired for being racist that they were going to rape my kids. And they dug up stories I had written about like being sexually abused as a kid by my father. And they were like, I'm glad your dad raped you. Just like some of like the most horrific things anyone has ever said to me in my life. And at the time it was like, I mean, it like ripped me open. Like I was in New York. I don't remember the rest of the trip. Like I was just like so shocked that people could be that horrific and awful, which again, white privilege. Like I was like, oh yeah. I mean, nobody thinks people should be racist, you know? And yeah, then I right. was like, oh, the racists do. Okay. <laughs> I got it. You know, the violent racists are actually really on board with that shit. And, um, 
Now, like when that shit happens, I don't even spend a second on it. I just block, 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 block. And I don't spend any time or energy on like letting those people anywhere near my heart, you know, or anywhere near my life. I just block and don't let them any access to me. Um, but yeah, that stuff, like when I, being a public person, when, it, when I first started, it was scary. I was really scared. I feel like that should be part of the gig economy. Like you should be able to go on a show and then like call an Uber and that Uber has a side driver who will take your phone and just go through your comments and delete a bunch of like nasty shit you. for you. I, I know. I've, <laughs> right? that would like, be amazing. You need an intern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have like, there have been times where I've done something and I've handed the phone to my husband and just been like, Would you just delete all that? I don't even need to see it. But that was only after something like really personal and kind of like that I knew that was like going to sting. For the most part, like I think I think a lot of my self-worth kind of used to be wrapped up in people pleasing. And when I wasn't people pleasing, I would feel really like anxious and like I had done something wrong. And now that it's not, I can kind of be like, those people are assholes. And that has nothing to do with me. And set it aside. Was... Was any of it, and I, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome at like, I, I, I don't, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but in my head, I'm wondering if you're starting at something, anybody who's starting at something, I feel most people have doubts of their worth while they're doing it. And it takes a while to feel like I can accept criticism and actually use that criticism to make myself better. I think initially you get criticism and it's like, I suck. I see it with kids all the time. We talk, we talk about it with teaching with like, do you ever tell a whatever, a one-year-old that like, gaga goo goo, and you're like, enunciate, motherfucker. And you're like, <laughs> I have notes. What is your pee? <laughs> Get your lips, purse. You're like, no. So like, yeah. why do we do that with kids if they're trying to like figure out how to write an essay? You make them feel like mm-hmm. shit with a bunch of red marks? No, like just encourage, encourage, and let them keep going. This way they don't feel that angst. So again, the long-winded way to get like, I wonder how much of that was just you like, starting off somewhere where this stuff is fucking with your identity, where now you kind of know, like you have the foundation, you're solidified and you can just bounce it off. It's just water off a duck's back. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's two kinds of comedians and one became a comedian because they already think they're a God. And the other (laughs) became a comedian because they think they're a total piece of shit, but they can't help it. They're just funny. And they're so sorry about that, you know? And it's funny because I, uh, I know a lot of both and all the people I'm good friends with in comedy are in that second group of people who are like, they, like one of my, one of my favorite comedians is Emmett Montgomery. He's from Seattle. He's really, really lovely. We did a show together last year and he, um, we both hadn't done comedy because of COVID in quite a while. And um, we, he beforehand was saying how nervous he was. And I was like, I'm not nervous. And now I feel like I should be nervous. <laughs> right. Like what's going to happen? And then he got up and he just like blew the room away. He was so funny. He was so good. And I was watching him and I was like, fuck, I'm going to eat shit, aren't I? Because like, I'm not nervous. And then Emmett was, and he's so funny. And then he got off stage and I was like, Ugh. and then I got up and I had a really good set too. Uh, I felt really comfortable. I wasn't ever nervous. I just had fun. I was like really excited to be on stage. We, we, and we both got off stage um, and immediately we were both like, like felt like shit. 
we were both like, oh, you were great. I was such, I was trash out there. Like not in, not in a like fishing way, but we immediately just assumed we had, both of us assumed we had done very bad. And, um, and it just, and after I like did it only for a second before I was like, no, no, I made people laugh. I know I did. Okay. I'm not going to do this like weird spiral that we always do as comedians, um, in that second group. But then they would have another comedian who every time he gets on stage, he's like, I crushed. I'm, I'm amazing. I'm a God. I all like that person always thinks they do well. Um, and I think like for me, a lot of the confidence has come from um, actually just more from like meditation, like learning to be present in the Stop. moment and trust myself. Dude, you're like you the know? fourth person that's brought up the power of meditation in the past three weeks. And I've, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's the universe. Sorry to cut you off, but like that's no, just, no. it's a yeah, weird it's, coincidence. It's been so enormously um, helpful for me because that's what comedy when, it, when I have a really good set, I can feel it. You're in like a pocket. It's like you shift into a gear and you're like, you can feel it. And sometimes before I go on stage, I can feel that I'm not there. And there's kind of no, sometimes no way to get there. And you just sort of have to accept that you're going to have a mediocre set or you're going to bomb. And I think letting go of the anxiety of that and sort of realizing that like when you're up there, you have to just sort of like let whatever hap- is going to happen, happen. And um, just sort of be curious and open to the experience. I think that's what's built my confidence is like learning to trust that like I'm funny and I'm smart and like it's okay for me. I had a, like a, a the kind of childhood where you're always like, oh, I shouldn't say I'm smart. Oh, I shouldn't say I'm funny. Like you know that I like I shouldn't feel good about myself. You know. Wow. So it took me a lot of years to be like, it's okay to think that. It's okay to think you're funny. It's okay to think you're smart. It's uh, what my therapist, uh, when I was, I was in treatment for a little bit for addiction issues and um, outpatient. And one of my therapists was like, you know, it's okay to not be the villain in your own story, right? And I was like, no, I did not know that. I was, I've always been the villain in my own story. And once I sort of let go of that and started just being like slowly over time, and it's been really incremental being like, what if you're the hero in this story and that's okay, you know? And, and like, okay, especially because if you are comporting yourself that way, then it's okay to feel like, yeah, I really am doing my best, you know? I really am, like, trying to main character this shit in the best way I can. So I think that's kind of coming from that. It's really, like, liking myself and not feeling so, like, I used to get off stage and immediately be like, I think I'll kill myself, you know, like I would just be a wreck immediately. Cause it's so, you're so vulnerable and you expose so much yourself and, um, and it, I just feel raw, you know? And it seems like most, and that's the weirdest part to me about comedians is like, I, I feel like a typical open mic, like y'all, as you're coming up, learning how to do shit, it's like a five, six minute bits clips right like you don't get a half hour 45 minutes out the gate right yeah yeah so like you get three minutes to like figure out your self-worth and it's like here you go wham bam thank you ma'am please tell me i'm awesome yeah yeah you get like little bites of attention and love and i also i think that's something I'm, I'm i'm actually like very fascinated by people's experience of comedy and um, I only, I dated a comedian for a while and, um, our, it was like, like there was no end to how much attention he 
wanted. You know, he would go out and like, like he just wanted to be adored and he wanted like more love, more love, more love. Whereas like when I got off stage, I want to go to my hotel and eat some breadsticks and I don't want to talk to anybody for two and a half hours because I feel, I feel so rubbed raw and I feel like naked, you know? And, um, we would do these meet, we did a couple of shows together and, um, he, he came on the road and opened for me and, it was so funny because afterward I would be like, let's go, let's go. And he'd be like, I'm talking to people. Right. And I was like, we are, we should be dating. We're, we're, you're an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Like, it's very clear that like we have very different ways of like approaching um, the love people have for us. And for me, it's always made me a little embarrassed, you know, a little uncomfortable. I'm trying to get more where like, no, it's okay for people to love you. That's totally fine. But it's funny to watch people who are like, they just literally couldn't get enough of that attention, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it's a weird spot for me. Um, it, it's I don't know if it's similar, but like after, just even after coaching a basketball, like a middle school basketball game, I just want to fucking keep my head down and walk out the gym and be left alone because I, I get so self-conscious. I really think it is about like disappointing people who, though I care about their kids, like they're not even a part of my life, right? Like I'm not yeah. going to know you in three years. You'll say hi if we, whatever, bump into each other in a grocery store, but it's not like we're barbecuing together and you deserve to impact my self-worth, right? Like you have to have yeah. some sort of social interaction where like, okay, we have a relationship, we value each other's time. So like it matters if you're upset or if you tell me I'm a piece of shit, I should stop and listen because you know me. You don't know me. You just watch me do something for 20 minutes. Exactly. But it, it's weird that it has that impact uh, regardless. Like I feel it in coaching. You feel it in comedy. That's very, it's strange that the feeling crosses yeah. whatever jobs, occupations. Well, and you might end up getting this um, with podcasting because with comedian, being a comedian um, and doing a lot of podcast stuff, like you, people feel like they know you. They feel like you, they have a relationship with you because they know a lot about you. You've shared so much stuff and like, I think for, that's part of the reason for me it always feels really uncomfortable is because you get off stage and people approach you like with a level of intimacy that you're like, no, we're strangers, you know? So um, some people feel very comfortable in that environment. And I have always been like, I just want to disappear for sure. We're, we're, dude, we are not at the, I know I was looking at you a lot and smiling yeah. very often. We are not at the rub my lower back level. Oh, moment, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if I use a guy in a joke, right? he will come up to me after the show and be like, are we fucking? And I'm like, oh no, I just like made eye contact with you while I was telling a sex joke. Like that has happened to me so, so much where they were genuinely thought we were like leaving yeah. together. Dude, and I'm, it's like, oh no, <laughs> this is my job. <laughs> Dude, waitresses get caught up in that shit all the time. So I grew yeah. up like as a waiter, busboy, bartender, you know, so you hear about it and I'm whatever, nine, I'm 15 through 30. I'm either working during the summers or full time as a waiter. So I got to know a lot of like older waiters. And as I got older in my thirties, I'm sitting teenagers where I'm like, holy shit, dude, I'm basically, I could teach you. And they would get so uncomfortable. It was like these mm -hmm. motherfuckers, I'd smile, nod, I'd laugh at his stupid ass joke. And like, he just slipped me his number and slapped me on the ass. And it's like, why does he feel I like him? Doesn't he know I have to be nice or I get fired? And you're like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like how come people don't realize that? Like the waitress oh, yeah. does not think you're funny, dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's funny. Cause that's for me as a bisexual woman. Um, like one of the reasons with women, like 
man, I give women so much space and I never assume they like me ever, 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 because, because I'll be like, oh, that the barista is really flirting with me. And then I'll be like, shut your fucking mouth, Arnold. Are you kidding me? The barista is flirting with you. What are you? What are you, a 19-year-old boy? Like, no, she was really into me. She made me a coffee and uh, she said, good morning. It's like, Jesus Christ. So I don't ever hit on women. I'm always like a thousand feet of space. And if they approach me, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Hi, hi, hi. You know? I wonder, do you think it's different for guys? Now I'm trying to think of myself. I feel like are guys only nice to the tables, like in the service industry, because there is a genuine attraction? Like, I wonder if there is like a weird double standard there to explore. Yeah, I don't know, actually. That is kind of interesting. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't see men, other than comedians, because the job is to be charming, flirt with people they aren't attracted to very often. Whereas women, I think, flirt as like a survival mechanism. A lot of the times, you know, um, it's like yeah. you don't even mean to be doing it. Sometimes you're just kind of trying to like politely get out of something. And so you're a little flirtatious, yeah, you know, and right? I don't know. I, I don't think men do that as much, maybe. Yeah, that's so when I, I was in the National Guard, I got back. I'm going to community college and um, a host and a busser that I work with happened to be a biracial gay couple which I was like, at the time you like kind of take for granted the access that you have to people's lives and experiences. I was like, holy shit, dude, that's kind of cool that I grew up a little bit around them. But it was, again, I'm 20, so it's 20-ish years ago and I'm like blown away by the conversations and openness that these gay dudes are telling me about. And I'm like, man, how do y'all like hook up? I, I like, it, it was so ignorant. It was like, I don't understand how like AIDS spread so fast for y'all. Why aren't you like strapping up? Don't you know what's, and he was like, Sean, do you know how horny you are and how you talk about all these women all the time? Yeah, I was like, yeah. And he was like, you know how most women reject you and want nothing to do with you and they're like, dude, you're going at me too hard? I was like, yeah, it's pretty common. And he was like, imagine if you were with other guys that you found attractive and it was just opened and reciprocated. He was like, that's kind of what dudes are. We don't know why like the seed spreader mentality is there, but they are like hyper aggressive with like, yeah, I, like I want that. And they are like it, they do seem to be very open outwardly to I wish like, I the wish attraction. men would all just start sleeping with each other. I think it'd be so great for you guys. If you guys like <laughs> just if we could eradicate any sort of homophobia or like toxic masculinity and you guys could all just start fucking each other. Because then I think a lot of the like affection and stuff that you aren't getting, like so that's that's why you're like slapping each other <laughs> with towels and punching each other in the ball. Because I mean, I'm just saying from like my experience with a lot of the like I'm around a lot of teenage boys also, obviously. And it seems like a lot of times when boys are being sort of aggressive, what they're actually looking for is like Love. sexual release or affection, yeah. you know? And they're not very good at finding the affection piece. Like it's not acceptable in our society for men to like cuddle and hug. Yeah, like, right? You're you a know, mama's and, boy. Like, dude, you're fucking, yeah. you're walking around with your mom's arm around you or you need a moment to like have her arm and like you're laying in her lap. You fucking mama's boy. That would be the reaction. Yeah. Yeah, That's like my kids point. are still um, very affectionate and very affectionate with uh, their friends and stuff and really very comfortable with their sexuality. And that was one of the reasons I fell in love with my husband was I was like, it's so rare to meet a man who's super comfortable in both their masculinity and their femininity and who has found like a really a place for both of those things in themselves. And it takes like so much confidence 
as a man, I think, to to cultivate gentleness, you know, it, because like it's so mocked by other men. And um, I, I just think like when I meet a man who is gentle and um, like has high emotional intelligence and is really detached to himself, like, you know, not to use the lingo, but to me, that's alpha shit. Because anybody can walk around and get praise from other men by being rough and horrible. But like to be gentle is like, that's really hard to get away with in our society. You know, I don't know. I just, I've always found that very sexy when men are like, um, sort of just, uh, I don't know, affectionate and kind and gentle and, you know, meaningful. <laughs> but at the <laughs> same time, just... we'll slap the shit out of someone who insults you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like, it's such <laughs> a weird sure. balance though. You're right. It's like, that's a very, but that's like perfect thing. masculinity. Like I, I wish I could, I wish I could like distill down what exactly it is, but it's like, uh, what I think healthy masculinity is, is protectiveness, um, but not in like a patriarchal shitty way, but in a like community building way, you know, like that, I think it's the, the part of, I, I actually think like men were meant to be poets. Um, oh. Men were meant to, men have beautiful, like intricate, intricately creative souls that I think a lot of times are screaming to be heard and that's you know i think that's why you see a lot of uh i don't know a lot of really creative hate yeah, <laughs> among dude, you need, certain you men you need to point it in a direction like there is this yeah. passion to produce conquer innovate create and i think it's like part of the battle on poverty and i think it was a huge part of like terroristic recruitment is you go after these young dudes that have no opportunities and you pour into them purpose and they funnel all their fucking yes. passion into some sort of hatred. And I remember like being like, why don't these dudes feel like they have a purpose? Go get a job, right? Like, like go have a girl. And then you realize like, okay, I live in Southern Delaware. I don't know what it's like in a mountain in Afghanistan or like in some town that doesn't have buildings. And you're like, wow, that that's, yeah, that does make sense. And I, there is, there's something in the human spirit, especially with dudes that like, they need to have that channeled in a productive well, way. Well, and if I you think it's a lot of times, I mean, this is, we're talking very binary here, but like, uh, like women have a lot of testosterone, like uh, a biologically female person um, still has quite a bit of testosterone. Like, I think men don't realize like, you know, during your menstrual cycle, you release a bunch of testosterone. That's why we get... Uh, real slappy the week before a period. It's because like we oh. get, you're sort of, I don't know. I always sort of describe it as like right before my period, I'm finally ready to throw down all the over all the stuff I was about to be conflict avoidant of for like the rest of the month. I'm always like ready to fight, you know. Um, it's the build up. But it's all stuff that it's been bothering me for a month. But it, I have like one week where I'm like, we're gonna handle all this shit. But I also like I think like women have found we've found really good outlets for our masculine sides and you know like the yin and yang shit you know like I have found some really good outlets for my yang energy and that's partly because it's becoming more socially acceptable for women to like tap into that energy and to to like be innovative to be in STEM you know to like to because I think like women have that same desire to do all of that stuff um, but I think it has been hasn't become as acceptable yet for men. And I think where a lot of the pain for men comes from is like, it hasn't become acceptable for women, for men to explore that yin energy, to explore, to explore artistic sides. And, you know, like, it's so strange to me that like this alpha stuff has taken a 
always realized for like a lot of history, like men were the only ones allowed to be poets, right? Like a lot of the shit that's like, quote unquote, like gay now was like exclusively male, like, you know, acting and writing yeah, right. and all these like things. And so it's it's funny how the, you know, that binary is always sort of shifting of like what men are supposed to do and what men are allowed to do. But um, I just wish that we could kind of let go of a lot of that and just sort of like the uncomfortability with like letting people express themselves how they see themselves you know like i just don't i think that's such a waste of energy uh, as as human humans <laughs> I, I see it in schools and it amazes me um and again i'm 40 so i'm around kids that are 30 years 30ish years how accepting of the like a typical like when i'm growing up and it's like your emo or your goth and like you, mm-hmm. there were two of you and like, you're, you're the scourge and you're horrible. And now like you can have kids with autism and Tourette and like severe emotional disturbances next to little Susie lacrosse girl. And you can have an outbreak like crazy. And she Sorry, doesn't really. Sorry, I'm getting a call. There we go. And she won't like blink an eye. She's just like, oh, that's where this person is in life. And there doesn't seem to be this huge, or it seems to be less of like these repercussive consequences to like figuring out who you are or the quirks of what comes with who you are. And it really gives me a lot of hope for like the future of acceptance because I feel like that's what, go if you go back to like racism, like that was part of like kids were just kids and they just played with kids who were nice with them. <laughs> and if a kid wasn't nice, they just went away from them. And it wasn't so much about color, it was so much about like your merit. And it seems like kids are getting that and going past appearances, which is cool. Cause so much of my upbringing was appearances are your identity and you have mm-hmm. to conform to certain appearances to be yeah. accepted. And it sucked, honestly, like, yeah, it completely sucks. And it's limiting and boring. Like, don't I sometimes like we'll look at men and be like, don't you get sick of this? Like the only look you're allowed to have is a beard and a hat. Like beard that's and it. you're not allowed to do anything else with no. yourself. You know, like you could have so much fun. Thanks, <laughs> but, thanks like, for calling me out. I've, I've been debating the shave <laughs> thing and I went for a jog and I didn't put beard. any pomade in here. So I was like, let me throw a hat on because I don't know how to look on the Zoom as a first impression <laughs> no, it's choice. Fine. Um, yeah no it's fine but that's I mean I was it's I was having um last night the boys had a game night and they had a bunch of friends over and afterward we were sitting there and we talked for like like four hours it was amazing and I just I feel the same way I have so much hope for their generation because they're having conversations about stuff that I only started figuring out like four years ago yeah you know they're they're so smart and so informed and like people are like oh TikTok's so bad for your kid's brain I'm like the only people who believe that are these weird fucking homeschool assholes, like, uh, which I don't even mean that as a general thing. I mean that as like a far right Christian nationalist homeschool assholes. Like the, the reality is, is your kid on TikTok is being exposed constantly to so many ideas and so many different people and ways of living. And like, uh, I just think it's like the stuff they were talking about, about capitalism and communism and, uh, just, like gender and two of them were gay and they were talking about like their experience in, you know, this Idaho high school being Asian and gay and like the discrimination, but also having so much compassion for the people who discriminate against them. Like one of the kids, this is heartbreaking, but one of the kids, um, the, I don't, I guess I won't share the story cause I don't actually have permission, but and a, you a girl, I was about to ask if you paid the hundred dollars. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
But I, he like shared this story about this girl being like, honestly, the most racist I've ever heard of anybody being, and I was completely shocked. And they suspended the girl and for two weeks. And he was like, I was a little upset because I felt it was like more punitive than it was, you know, helpful. Like what she needs is education. What she needs is outreach. And what she got was sent home to her racist parents for two weeks. And I was like, fucking listen to you. Yeah, to like, like double down on the thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It's very pragmatic. Those are kids who are like already at 18. Yeah. They're walking the walk already, you know. And I just think that's. I was just listening to them and I was just like, this is so cool. I mean, yeah, when I was 18, I, I don't know if I was that passionate and smart, you know? No doubt. And the counter is like, oh, you're soft. And it's like, well, it's soft to be understanding. So like you're scared. The And th this is where you try to like play the what if game and stuff. And it's, I don't even know if it's worth it to get into, but it's like, what is the natural consequence that we're afraid of because we're understanding and accepting like we're going to be taken advantage of in some way. We're going to be invaded in some yeah. way. We're going to lose. Like what about that is the disadvantage. And that's where I like, I haven't heard a good, you're right. Got to toughen up my girl. <laughs> Get yeah. her more calluses. Get her more rigid minded. Like I no. just, I haven't heard a decent counter to the, I get it. Like that does come across as soft for someone who's been staunch in something because it's malleable it's flexible it's meant to be soft so that you can bend like fucking trees bend right they're hard but they also bend that's why they don't yeah. break a lot of times and it's it, it i haven't gotten to that second counter of why is that a bad thing yeah it's interesting because i have obviously living in idaho some relatives who are like very right wing you know very anti-immigrant very like you know think that antifa is like literally down at Macy's breaking windows right now. You know, they're like <laughs> terrified of any kind of otherness. They're like, they'll take your kids and make them trans, like that kind of shit. And it's so strange. I don't talk to them very much, obviously. But uh, when we do talk, I'm, it's, I'm always like, what are you, what exactly are you so afraid of? Because that's what I don't quite get is like, you're, and honestly, what I think it is for some people is, um, especially maybe older people, it's like, I always try to have a little bit of empathy for those people because I'm like, yeah, it seems scary to lose the world when you never thought you would. Like, I've always been very aware of the fact that I'm going to age and die. And um, maybe that's a millennial thing. Maybe that's a me thing. I don't know. But I feel like our parents, the boomer, because we're the same age, and our, I feel like a lot of our, like, the boomer generation, like, they didn't know that. They didn't know, like, they, their ideas were going to, like, seem dumb to teenagers <laughs> you mm -hmm. know like that's best like that's supposed to happen all the stuff you believe is supposed to like teenagers are supposed to be like oh my god that's dumb you're a square that's well, yeah, dumb that's how like, you know you've aged right when you're like when the words come out like dude your fucking music sucks yep yeah yep. done i'm old yep. like that that yeah. now, now oh my god I'm or my, my kid's friend wearing a green day t-shirt he's like i love classic rock and i was like whoa no, no okay doubt. yeah all, all the best jams <laughs> wow. are on classic right. rock now how'd that happen I was like, oh wow. that's right the same way that my beard got gray because and i think you can either trust years. the younger generation to to because I, I think society is always evolving. And so you can sort of trust the, the generation to have good and new ideas. And you can like um, listen to that and absorb that and be thinking about that. And um, or you can like, and not even the newer generation, 
imagination, just the ideas around you. I think you can like trust your fellow humans to have ideas you didn't think of that are maybe right because their experience is different. But like I see a lot of older people, like our boomer parents kind of think we're all morons, like we, that we don't, like I love my parents and they're very progressive, but my mom the other day was like, well, we just saved $50 a month and we now we have 60K in our IRA. And I'm like, oh, really? You bought this fucking house for $23,000, you know? Like it's just, it's so funny to me. <laughs> like they're like you're just not responsible with money i'm like the fuck it's not me i'm not an idiot you know but they don't like trust us and so they don't trust us our our ideas or like our social change or like well it's also anything. a priority right like priority shift the world's expanded and you just value with exposure and experience you value different things and like they i don't think they valued maybe like world travel as much as or, yeah. or exposure or understanding. They probably valued more like security or they valued the stability or they valued being set because maybe they didn't have the safety nets and maybe we're foolish to rely on the government and social security checks. But I swear to God. For I think 30... we're relying on climate change. I mean, I don't have any retirement. <laughs> I mean, you maybe have a little because you're a teacher, but probably not much. But I honestly think millennials have just kind of like, I think we've given up, you so know, like. I Idaho's the next waterfront community by now. <laughs> we're actually a desert everybody's been moving here uh right. like crazy we actually are the most expensive place to live in the country right now which nobody knows and nobody believes but we're more expensive even than toronto which is the most expensive place in north america yeah. we're it's gotten crazy here so help but me, it's very dry and we're about to run out of water help me under what does that mean expensive like give me a um comp. like our so our it used to be part of the reason i've lived here our, My family's here, and um, I was always like, it's beautiful. I'm a very outdoorsy person, but it was also really cheap to live here. So, you know, you could get, like, a decent house for, like, 120 and you could it was very affordable. And you could get an apartment for, like, 600 or whatever. And so, like, for example, the apartment that I was renting um, at the beginning of COVID, when I first moved in, it was 650 During It had went up every year, and it was um, 950 at the beginning of COVID, when we moved out and now they're renting it for 1850 and it is a two bedroom. Yes. A two bedroom, one bath, a very shitty single mom apartment. Like it was not anything nice. It was a complete like 1800, $1,850 for a two bedroom. And that's like in Idaho. Like what's the industry that's fueling that? And people will be like, Oh, that's, that's how expensive it is in LA. And it's like, yeah, except our minimum wage is still $7 and 25. (laughs) sense here like uh and there are no no decent jobs there's not industry here you know there's nothing to do um so yeah it's it's pretty pretty shitty and the house is like this house that my my parents bought for twenty three thousand dollars cash um in 1989 um is uh on zillow right now for five hundred and fifty thousand. so what are we supposed to do with that what are we supposed to do with that we can't compete with that you know like can i get we'll land, never own a house it's fine land in square footage of it just to help me yeah like, it's um it's a third of an acre so it's a big lot stop um, a third of an acre is a big lot to you uh, right no i mean here it Are is now serious? it wouldn't have been the rest of my life okay, uh but co- for here that's a really big lot wow yeah and it's s- gotten square footage nuts. 
Um, I'm guessing around 2000. That's my guess. That's so average. Is it like a rancher style or like two story? Uh, it is a, oh. so like all the houses in the neighborhood are like, um, three bedroom, one bath, single wides. But then the, the people who lived here before we did were like, let's fucking make an addition. So it has this very not to code addition with, <laughs> uh, another story. Um, so they took the garage and like made it a playroom and then a bedroom above that. That's where we are. We're in my bedroom. Gosh. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's a very funkily built house because they just were like, let's add on, let's build a cellar, let's dig a weird hole, you know, I love like those homes. Yeah, it's Pre-code. really wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I'm so attached to it. But um, the only reason we could afford to rent it was because my parents they were like, if we don't have to do any of the maintenance, we'll give you a little bit of money off. And you know, we got lucky basically that their renter moved out. So otherwise, we'd still be in that fucking two bedroom. And I don't know. Uh, how we would have afforded it. So, yeah. So Delaware, this is why I'm amazing because Delaware has been going through a boom where everyone's like, we can't fucking afford anything around here. But you can get like a 3,000 square foot brand new built home on a quarter acre two miles from the beach. And with traffic, it might take you like 20 minutes. So I'm on the part east coast of Delaware where it's right before the Delaware Bay. So it's right on the tip. So you can get the Atlantic Ocean before the New Jersey part, right? Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually get ocean. It's not like bay water where it doesn't feel like beach. You know, like you got to yeah, have actual yeah. waves that you can surf and shit. But like that's 700,000. And like to comp that to fucking no disrespect. I mean, Idaho, but that's a beach, you know. That's, that's what a beach. I'm saying. Like you say, yeah. oh, beach, and like yeah. Idaho for a five hundred thousand for a two thousand square foot home from nineteen eighty nine, dude. I'm running out a two thousand square foot modular rancher on an acre for sixteen hundred. It's got a yeah. shed, a two car garage, and like I'm, I feel fortunate, or fifteen hundred. And I'm like. I might be able to jack that up a little bit. I wouldn't have thought Idaho, eighteen hundred for a two bedroom, one bath. No well, it's way because I would have guessed that. At the beginning of COVID, um, so we kind of got marked as like this far right mecca where because we had no COVID laws at whatsoever, no mandates, nothing. And they basically were like, We're Florida. We're the Florida of the North is what we are. And so people were like from California, from Orange County specifically, and um, San Jose and the Bay Area and oh, stuff. So they're coming Republicans in who were like, fucking money, they man. were like, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm going to fucking Idaho. And so people came up here. They sold their house in California for a million dollars. And then they came up here and 500,000 seemed cheap as fuck. Yeah. So that's what happened is, and our politics. which were already the wildest things have gotten so horrible. Like we just passed a six week abortion ban where if you are raped and you get an abortion, the family of your rapist can sue the provider. Every, every member can sue for $20,000 and they were trying to pass an anti-trans bill here. And just a lot of, it's been a really rough couple of years and it's been, I mean, it was always a bunch of rednecks here. You know, I I grew up around a lot of rednecks, but they were kind of old school, like, old hippie rednecks, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's really changed. It's like big money Republicans who are like, I want to, I want to play country. I'm going to go out to Idaho. I'm going to play country. And they just fuck up the hot springs and they're just literally the worst people in the world. And I hate them. <laughs> uh, that's why I, I, I don't know. I don't do as much comedy here as I used to. Cause the crowds used to be really fun. Even in the rural towns, I used to have a really good time. You know, I grew up on a farm 
and I know my way around like small towns and stuff. Um, but it's different. It's not like how it used to be. It's dangerous out there. Yeah. How do you do comedy? And may, again, maybe this is East Coast bias since we've gotten into exploring all of our um, biases, biases within us. But like, I don't think of, hey, I want to be a comedian. Let me hang around Idaho and like grab some open mics. And like, yeah, no. How does that work? And because you, you filmed the special <laughs> that I saw in Idaho and it seemed like that was a pretty decent sized crowd unless the camera work or it's CGI'd no, no. in or no, something. No, I think shit. it was 350 or so. Yeah, yeah, dude. Like it seemed like a legit, I was like, wow, dude, that's a crowd. No, no, no yeah. shade, but you're like, that's no, no. Idaho? I mean, I mean, Idaho's, <laughs> Boise's got 400,000 people or it's Pittsburgh sized basically. Right. So it's like a proper city, but um, no, it was weird when I was coming up. Like um, when I first started, there was like one open mic a week and they did music and stuff too, you know? And, um, I actually, you know, you were talking about comedians only getting to do three or four minutes in the beginning. I actually kind of lucked out because I, um, there was an audition for this guy. There were these things called the triple runs back then, which they did, uh, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, and a little bit of Oregon, um, and Washington. And they were like these just terrible garbage rural runs really rough shows for the most part. not all of them some of them pretty fun some of them at casinos some of them at just like diviest dive bars um and i did really well in my audition even though i'd only been doing comedy for a few months and but i just i like nailed it because poverty is a really good motivator so i was just like i gotta crush the set and so the guy was like yeah all right you can start opening so um, every other weekend when I didn't have my kids, I would go out on the road and I would do these feature gigs, which were a half hour. And like I had seven minutes, you know, <laughs> I did not have a half hour. But I also like, you know, I had been in doing storytelling stuff before then. So I would just kind of tell stories and, you know, do my best and crowd work and stuff. And uh, it really helped me get good fast because those crowds are like, it's like being dumped into piranhas. You know, you're in fucking Elko, Nevada and like uh, some little dive bar and everybody's kind of mad that you're there because the TV's on and like the basketball's on and you're doing comedy and they're like, oh, it, it really helps me like appreciate that you're taking up people's time and that you're lucky to have that time. You know, like people's attention is... is increasingly hard to get and so if you get an hour of people's attention that's pretty incredible that's actually like a really big compliment so um so yeah that's kind of how I started and yeah there weren't open mics but I got lucky and ended up going out on the road uh in terrible situations which is probably again why I'm not afraid of being slapped is because like I've had somebody throw a lobster tail because I was doing comedy during the NCAA championships (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, well, that's just poor management choice right there. I know that like, that who, room who that they would make you do. That? Every time I would do it, I would be like, I'm so sorry. I know nobody wants this. <laughs> <laughs> this is unconsensual laughter. I'm trying to force upon you. I don't want to be here and you don't want to be here. And you're just trying to eat the buffet, but I need, they, I have to do a full 45 where I don't get my $250. So I'm so sorry. Like I would just. I would just power through every time. So, yeah. How, why did you choose comedy to try to deal with poverty? Oh like, God. how come you're not a fucking coder? <laughs> I'm, or... a, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, so 
I got married really young and we had kids like right away. And um, I didn't really have a, it's funny because I had a full ride scholarship to um, a really cool university and I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I met this guy and I got knocked, we got married and I got knocked up and, um, and then we were together. He was a helicopter pilot and we bounced around for his job all the time. And I just kind of never had time to like finish school or anything. And, and I was a stay at home mom and I was raising kids and I was really busy and I was pregnant for most of my twenties, you know? So then when I turned 30, um, we separated and I found myself and he took off. Like he disappeared. He fucked off to Texas for like, I don't know, eight months or something a year. And um, I had no way of supporting myself at all. Like and I fucked hadn't... off as in, hey man, I'm not even transferring you some. This is, no, no. I mean like literally cleared out our checking account, charged up our credit cards Stop. and fucked off. The typical, like the fucking stereotypical, um, I'm bouncing and you're fucked. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I didn't have any, I had literally just started doing open mics. I think like, like, li- like around that time for like a few months and I had nothing else to do. I had nothing, I had no, I applied for some jobs. I had been <laughs> writing for a long time. I was a really good writer and I was doing like, well, and I did, I wrote, I mean, you asked about sex stuff, but I kind of forgot. Oh, um, I wrote erotica the first year. I wrote a bunch of erotica <laughs> for the Kindle. And that was how I supported us for the first year until comedy started making us like a little bit of money. Can you um, um, dig deep into that for me as deep as you can go? <laughs> um, what sure. Is, what does that mean to write erotica for a Kindle? Like, Well, so when the Kindle first came out, I kind of lucked out actually. So like um, when the Kindle first came out, uh, there was like people started writing a bunch of erotica for it, like short stories and, and books and stuff. And my, I was, I was writing a bunch of other stuff. I've actually written a bunch of novels, all bad, and um, <laughs> really just... bad, embarrassingly bad. <laughs> People are always like, "Let me read it." I was like, "I would have rather die." Uh, but I, so I, I was this publisher of mine. Um, I had sent him a bunch of books, and he was a friend, and I wanted him to publish this like sci-fi book I had done. And he was like, "I'm going to be honest with you, uh, you're a terrible world builder." But there's a ton of sex in here, and I think you could make some money doing erotica. And he was like, I have authors doing, like, six figures. I never did that well. But um, I wasn't as prolific also. Um, should I turn the light on? Is it too dark in here? No, I, I think um, it's the perfect lighting to talk about erotica. Okay, okay, okay perfect. <laughs> Maybe afterwards. <laughs> um, but so I, um, like I said, I'm like a research. Like dug in super deep and I like researched what was selling the best but had the least amount of writing and it was BDSM stuff like it was all like spanking and bondage and fetish stuff and so I just started writing tons of stories like uh, like I would do about five to ten thousand words and I would just I would write and write and write and when the kids I would drop the kids off at school in the morning I always thought it was sort of a funny <laughs> I would just like drop them off and then go and like write porn all day. day. Like you're making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the morning and you're just thinking about what's a different way to talk about anal penetration. I actually, I have a um, (laughs) screenplay that I wrote that is basically that concept that is like, uh, because it was so, it was, it was so funny. You know, I would go home, like, you know, 
Dude, what do you go fucking talk to the like the parents at recess? You know those like awkward conversations oh when your well, kids actually, are on the playground and you're just I like, oh just, hey, Fred, what's up? Yeah, just they would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, I write erotica, and then half the time that I would end up with commissions for reals. <laughs> like people would be like, will you do a commission? And I would be like, sure. Um, I just used it as advertising, honestly. And like we talked about earlier, like with some of the exhibition and using your body stuff, um, right. I was like, okay, I. I mean, I, we were really, 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 really broke. And so I was just like, I have to make this work. So I came up with a whole bunch of personas and I would interact on Reddit and um, like FetLife, which was like Facebook, but for fetish people as those personas being like, like talking to the people within those kink communities as if I was that person, not, not as like a fake thing. I mean, like everybody's kind of doing a, in those kink things, it's like a lot of people are doing personas. So it's not like, right. Like, what? isn't that kind of the point? And I'm, yeah, right, exactly. I'm not, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. I, maybe I'm not securing myself enough to be familiar with it. But like, that's the point, right? Like you take the role and you embrace it. Yeah, a lot of times for different things it is. So I would interact with people and get them to buy my books and like had fans for different pseudonyms, you know, essentially. And for a couple of years, I really, I did a t- like a lot, a lot of that. And then comedy started kind of taking off around the same time. And I was like, I really can tell I only have the energy for one of these. And unfortunately, one pays pretty well. And the other one is not yet paying. But I was like, at the end of the day, you're like, you only have so much water in your creative well. And I was like, if I keep doing the erotica, I'll probably make more money. But I also like, uh, really like fell in love with comedy and like wanted, you know, I thought it was fun. And then, I don't know, the first time I was on stage, I was like, oh yeah, this, I was built for this. I was made to do this. Like, you know, I, I just clicked. Whereas the erotica was kind of more of a, it was like a day job, you know, not entirely. Like I had fun with it and, you know, it was sometimes sexy and exciting and, but it was a lot more like, I think people thought it was like very glamorous and I'm like, I'm literally in like a spidery basement um, in my sweaty t-shirt, like trying to find another word for penis. Cause I've used penis too many times, you know, like I have a thesaurus out. So <laughs> I've was, already it, been blocked. <laughs> like I've already, I've already gotten several viruses on my computers for clicking on different websites <laughs> to help me understand yeah, exactly. how to reword shit. Yeah. So what, what was so the, I, can- and I did actually, I did a lot of commissions with like very nice people who had very specific kinks that they weren't able to find pornography for otherwise and um and it was always interesting because i'd get to know them you know and like kind of get to know their personal life like very intimately and their partner sometimes and so that's and and if we can if you're comfortable with it um that's something i had no idea was out there so like artists can get hired to paint portraits there's a like a market out there for like hey i want you to write this specific type of Definitely. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Because like, um, a lot of women and gay men and non-binary people actually like prefer erotica, um, to like visual porn, partly because especially at the time, you know, porn is so like patriarchal driven. So like, it's very male gazy. So like maybe what you actually want to see, it's like Pornhub's not offering that visually. But also, like, if you go and read some erotic stories, it's actually a lot of fun. It can be very sexy and it can be, you know, um, I think for some people with, like, very specific kinks that are, like, maybe 
hard to act out in daily life, um, the erotica is a, an easier way to kind of sink into that world, you know, and have realism and stuff. So, gotcha. yeah, it's a pretty good market for it. If I don't know how it is anymore. I mean, I haven't done it in years, but at the time, and especially because the Kindle was brand new, you know, and everybody was like, ooh, the Kindle, the Kindle, the Kindle. So it's like you could make decent money. I mean, I was charging 6 to $10 for a 5,000-word story, and and I was having no trouble selling them because most of them are so poorly written, and I'm a decent writer, so people would be like, oh, my God, thank God. This is actually, like, well-written. 6 to $10 per, not, like, on a commission to one person, but just no, out no, no, there per where story. you would download per story. So like yeah, per and download. so I would charge... Gotcha. Um, I don't exactly remember. I think I would charge like six to eight hundred if you wanted a story that was only yours gotcha. and no one else ever saw it. And then I would charge three hundred if I had the rights to it and I could use it on the Kindle. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And d because I'm also a language arts teacher and I get super into this shit, I love a good fucking story and I love tropes and mm -hmm. I love analyzing, but I've never analyzed erotica. Actually, I want I want to. I feel like my first exposure to books being porn was Cujo. Did you ever read Cujo oh, by Stephen absolutely. King? The dude's yeah. fucking like nutting on beds and he's like fucking this woman and this girl coming and like the dog's there and you're just like, what the, like this detect, I don't, it's been you're so like, long. like, this is not in the movie. No doubt, <laughs> but I'm like, as whatever, a 17 or 16, might've been 16 or 15. And you like have to go to the library for internet because I didn't have internet in my house. It's like, I can either go to my friend's house and tr hope his dad passes out so he can steal his porn or does Stephen King do this in all his books? Yeah. Yeah. Right? So all that as a stupid ass backstory to be like, are there certain tropes or certain common out, like certain plot things that you just like templated? For mm -hmm, your story basically. Format? I mean, well, and like, that's funny. Cause you say about Stephen King, cause I read Stephen King's entire repertoire when I was like 10 and 11, Seriously? Um, which is very young to be digging into all of Stephen King, but no we sure. weren't allowed to watch TV, but we were allowed to read whatever we wanted. And so uh, I would, and I was a reader, like there are pictures of me in a canoe reading a book. Like I was always reading. Um, but yeah, basically there's a bit of a formula to it, you know, um, depending on how, like what kind of story you were doing. I always just tried to like have fun with it and sort of like, I don't know, just the whole thing is kind of silly, you know, it's not really oh. like regular porn. I don't know, but yeah, it's, I, but it's funny because people always ask for my pseudonyms now and most of it's pulled. Um, the stuff I still had the rights to when I became like a, even a little tiny bit famous, I pulled all of it because um, one of the guys who stalked me found all of it and was like posting it and stuff. And um, so I ended up pulling all of it. And, uh, posting it to the, and I think there might be a couple things on, I'm sorry. There was a weird, he was, I guess he wasn't, no, I guess he wasn't posting it, but he was sending me screenshots. And then actually he did post it on Twitter. He would post it in my replies, like screenshots of stories, um, yeah. to like, I guess, embarrass me or something. Um, yeah. Cause in my mind, I was wondering like, is he fucking like downloading it and you're getting like these weird residual checks? <laughs> yeah, like, probably. I mean, he dope. had to buy it. So yeah, you know, like, um, but no, he would just post like screenshots and try to like humiliate me. And I would just be like, okay, so thanks. <laughs> it, it's not as stupid. And if you don't want to get into it, I'm, I'm not trying to like put you in a corner, but I am 
interested in like commonalities of stories. So if you go with porn, it's like the whole, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't pay for this service. Is there anything I can do? And then boom, right? Yeah. And like, but I wonder like- I mean, that's, again, that's like, that's male porn. You yeah, know what I mean? That's exactly. like the male driven stuff. That, so That's what you say. The stuff I mostly wrote, um, I tried to, because I'm uh, also like have kind of a, a little bit of a background in marketing. I always did copywriting and stuff as well. So I tried very hard to like, I realized that if you did a story that was like just bondage, you only hit the bondage people, they would only buy your book. But if you were like, this story has bondage, spanking, humiliation, you know, like 15 things, you get 15 different subgroups buying your book. So I would always try to like do that. And then I would just, I had, I had an ongoing series that was like with a wife and a husband that was like BDSM related. And then I had an ongoing series that was like more straight sex, more gentle and sweet, but with like a, like a little, a little kiss of, of bondage that was kind of for like the more vanilla people. Um, that was like more like kind of romantic that started actually as a commission that, um, this guy had me do for his wife and she loved them so much. I actually ended up doing 15 of them and Holy then putting shit. them out as like a series, which was really fun. Um, and it was like about the two of them. I wish I'm sure for them was part of the kink was I was writing these stories about them, the couple. And they were very like, Oh, she's thinking about us fucking. And I was like, sure. Um, <laughs> I guess I am, but because it pays really well. Um, as I walk my but, dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a day job, but, uh, I mean, I did like furry stuff. I did vor stuff, which is where people have a fetish where they want to be eaten by something bigger than them. Um, like a worm specifically sometimes, so um, I wrote imagine. So there's a really cool shell, shell Silverstein poem. Are you familiar with shell Silverstein? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, dude, I fucking worked with a teacher that like put me onto his music and I immediately got creeped the fuck out. Like I idolized this dude and his biography, like his headshot always wigged me out with the beard and the bald head. And then he has a record and the record's like, you took way too much acid, man. Like you went to a place you should not <laughs> have gone as a children's writer. But one of his stories is like this girl getting um, eaten by like a boa constrictor. It's like, oh no, it's oh, up to my right. toe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gee, it's up to yeah. my knee. Oh, heck, it's oh. up to my neck. Oh, man, it's up to my... <gasps> and it just oh my gosh, I had that tape, his music. I had that tape as a child. Now I'm just realizing that his music stuff I was very familiar with, actually. Oh, no shit. Oh, yeah. my God. We were a weird hippie family. Yeah, of course we had that. <laughs> it, it sounds like it shaped you in several ways. <laughs> I Probably, yeah. But I didn't know uh, that was like thing like that's a thing for people that they want to mm -hmm. visualize it seems yeah, so I dangerous think, like you how know, do you I control that to think bring like the reality people yeah and that's why i say like uh, a lot of times when i would meet and talk to people that had these fetishes i would be like because this is all just sexual template stuff right like something happened to you as a kid that caused probably a fear response, but that your body interprets now interprets as arousal. And so you're like, oh, I guess this is my thing. Fantastic, you know? And like the people who have something that's very hard itch to scratch, uh, um, I've always thought that must be kind of difficult, honestly, because like yeah. it's a very specific, you know, like that's why I kind of have compassion for those guys who are like sending me their small dick and they're like, humiliate me publicly. Tell me how small my dick is. And I'm like... 
oh man, that sucks because like you feel so self-conscious of this that, and there's so much shame around it that it's become sexual. You know, it's become, and like the only way you can kind of live with this piece of your body is to build like a sexual shame relationship with it. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, there's like a, human sexuality is fascinating and broad and people have the wildest, most interesting fetishes. And I got to uh, learn about and interact with people. And I always just tried to, like when I wrote furry porn, I would just be like, you tell, I only mostly did commissions for those. Um, but I would just be like, you tell me what you like. Um, like sometimes, although sometimes the furry stuff I wrote, they were also feeders, which is where force feeding someone or being force fed is part of it. And, um, I'd just be like, you explain to me why this is hot, because otherwise it's not my fetish, so I can't really understand. But then I would just try to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that, sure. And I would just try to write it from, like, their perspective, you know, and try to understand it. How? Maybe it's just because I'm super awkward in most aspects of life. I don't understand how I would even try to get that conversation started. And it makes me want to be like, could I be that guy? I feel like I'm decently creative. I'm somewhat good with words. I want to see if I can get six to ten dollars a down. Like this is where my mind is going. But like, yeah. so I get the pseudonym. But like, how do I break into that market where I'm like, whatever? Someone's behind me in the grocery line, and I'm like, so into toes, huh? Like, how do you? Yeah, don't do that for right? sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's just. But like, what's the? Not, not that there's like. Well, a like code I said, I interacted shit. with a lot of people on Reddit and on FetLife and stuff, and so like I became part of those communities, and I also gotcha. educated myself kind of beforehand, like, you know, the the rules and the etiquette, whatever, yeah, so that I wasn't, right. you know, storming in just trying to make money. Um, I tried to do it respectfully, um, and it... I think that like I think that you, how I would do it now, if I was going to bust back into it is that I would do that same thing. I would just join those reddits. I would give away a couple of free stories and then be like, Hey, if you liked those, here's my stuff, you know, Amazon self-publishing is, it was pretty difficult when I started doing it. Um, but it's gotten way easy. I mean, the, the create space stuff that Amazon has figured out is like, so seamless. You used to have to code everything. I had to learn how to code to do a bunch of it. It was so exhausting. Uh, but you now you don't have to do any of that. Well, because like it used to be so hard to like set your margins in the book correctly. And so you would have to do all this like H shit, um, to like figure out how to make your book look right on an e-reader or on a phone oh, later okay. on a phone. So it was, just, yeah, it was a lot of work. And so that's part of the reason when I was like, do I want, do I want to do this or do what I rather do comedy, which I actually really love. Yeah. I so. I, it's part of it too because you get to like claim it that like it gets to be part of your identity versus the pseudonym aspect no i mean i the pseudonym thing i always appreciated in a way if you could i keep saying if you could if i could do comedy and be and nobody knew who i was like Puppets. that would be incredible that's the dream for me is i if nobody ever met me or knew who i was that would be the way to do it i should have seeded it you know like done a hair wig or thing um, mask singer. <laughs> yeah. I, I like the anonymity, um, a lot actually, but it's a weird thing I juggle is like to do my job, you have to be able to put butts in seats. You have to be able to yeah. be popular enough to sell out of room and you have to be well known to do that. So, um, I'm trying to find this like happy middle place, like where people know who you are, 
but they leave you mostly alone. <laughs> That's the dream. <laughs> I, dude, I, I wanted to ask this in like a little bit of jest, but like in a little bit of curiosity. I feel like, if, and, and I don't want to just like whatever, like again, corner you, pigeonhole you as like this erotica thing, but it's something I've never got to ask somebody who actually has experience. Fifty Shades of Grey like puts that shit on the map. And I remember like kids coming in and wanting to talk about like, and they're reading that book and it's like the X rated book. Did you feel, fuck man, that could have been me or was, oh, no, no, next level. No, like, because like, just like comedy, like what ultimately appeals to the masses is kind of trash. I and it, I mean, so I, bad. I'm, I'm capable of writing trash, I suppose, but like, Every story I ever did, I really, like, put heart and soul uh, into it, you know? Like, it really mattered to me that at the end of the day, it was a pleasurable read. And, like, I don't know if you've read The Fifty Shades of Grey. People, would, when I, they found out I was writing erotica, would always be like, oh, like, Fifty Shades of Grey? And I'd be like, yeah. no, um, Never not abusive. <laughs> yeah, watched, watched the first movie and was like, yeah. no, I don't want to fucking read this book. Like, I okay, yeah. cool. He's, like, we want to bruise people and... There's, why is there so much pain involved? It was uncomfortable for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote stuff with plenty of pain involved, and it's not the subject matter that bothered me so much. I just thought that she wasn't a very, I don't think the writing is very strong, and also it was very, like, I don't know, very straight and very corny. And, like, also that relationship is not healthy. It's not a healthy relationship, you know, like, ultimately. So, yeah, I, I the stuff that, America wants to masturbate to in general, it doesn't interest me. I like the weirdos, you know, whether it's comedy or porn, I'm there for the weirdos. I'm there for the people who are like, I have a very specific, uh, I used to always say that like my, my comedy style is like pickled okra. Like not very many people are into it, but the people who are into it are very into it. You know, like gotcha. it's kind of the porn I wrote too. So. Dude, that's, it. it's crazy when you think about, careers life it almost goes back to like the boomer generation of like oh my god you're 30 and you're starting this career you have this side hustle thing like it's very anti-establishment and it's mm -hmm. awesome like at that age with the pressure you had on you man that you're able to fucking juggle that and create create like a creative enough environment despite the spiders to churn out <laughs> shit to like feed people man like yeah. I, I don't think enough people try to create something and sell it to realize, man, that's fucking hard. It's hard to create something that people want to consume. Yeah. I mean, I think now, like you saying that kind of does make me realize like, uh, you know, I started writing when I was like 18 and it was always my dream as a kid was to be a writer. And I've always kind of poo-pooed the erotica stuff a little bit, you know, just kind of like, eh, whatever or paid our bills for a couple years. But at the end of the day, I think it, it is actually kind of impressive that I was able to just like do that, you know, and to make some, I mean, I didn't make good money. Part of the reason we could do that is because like I was raised very counterculture and I was raised off the grid in a lot of ways. And I know how to live on so little money, gotcha. you know, like I'm really good at being poor. I mean, even right now, that's part of the reason we're comfortable is because I'm really good at being poor. Um, Dude, it's an underrated skill. Like that's something that I don't give myself enough credit for is like when I got hired as a teacher, my spending habits didn't change as I continued to get graduate degrees. 
And a lot of people look at me in this like upper middle class way. It's like, dude, the only reason I'm upper middle class because I don't give a fuck. Like I'm still in the same pair of pants I've had for 10 years. Like if, if they ain't ripped, I ain't buying new ones just to buy new ones. I don't give a fuck that like whatever the legs are tighter now. Nope, I'm the baggy wearing motherfucker. You ain't getting me to spend 20 bucks. And like yeah. just little shit like that and being okay, um, like almost like a minimalistic view is a really underrated skill in America because we're so fucking consumer happy. Yeah, yeah. I'm really hoping that's something that COVID changes, you know, because there's been so many shifts in our society and I really, really want for people to like uh, get away from consumerism and materialism. And I mean, that's very, very much how we were raised. And it's funny to see a lot of the stuff from when I was a kid that your family on the block become like mainstream. Like, you know, my family was like thumbs down to gender, you know, and stuff like that. Like my mom was so ahead of her time. She was so cool. And, um, yeah, I just think that was, that's a very good skill. And it's part of the reason I was able to raise three kids and do comedy was because I just was like really cheap. I was just not even cheap because I'm not cheap. Like I go out to eat, I buy nice yeah. sheets. I, I take really, you know, I take myself to, to do treats and do nice things. But yeah. um, I just don't, I never felt like I needed to show off, you know, what I owned or what I had or switch out my wardrobe every year or whatever. So yeah. No, dude, I'm with you. I got into uh, day trading a little bit with COVID and just figuring out, trying to how to play a stock market because you always hear about it. And one of my stocks, whatever, currently doubled. And I'm like looking at my head and I'm like, dude, I'd like a really nice stereo system in my Jeep. Might want to get some rims, never had rims. But maybe I just want to get really like solar panels so I can have some nice AC in my house that's cheaper. <laughs> like maybe that would be the better play with the money. And like, I, I don't know how normal that is to like get a whatever, a $2,000 windfall and be like, maybe I can ride this for some solar panels versus yeah. let, you know, fucking just whatever, let it ride, spend it on some silly shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think our grandparents generation was like really frugal because of the depression. Right. And I feel like that's sort of being thumbprinted onto all of us now, you know, like, Cause just we're, cause of we're poor, yeah. you know, the millennials are by and large, like not doing great. So yeah, your buying uh, options are so limited. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I have to right. go because I have to go, uh, hang out with my kids. Um, we're actually doing a huge project right now. I'm so excited. I, I hope they give me permission to show it. My son was supposed mm -hmm. to do a video for school about a book he read but they have put, and it, I, it's like the kind of thing that usually like a, a high schooler, they're going to put like 15 minutes of work in the night before. No Instead, doubt. they've done this like entire film and it's so funny and so amazing. And I can't believe they made it. Like I'm just, I'm just so impressed with them and it's, it's really cool. So I have to go, I have to go, um, I think I get to play the wizard. I've been asking, I've been asking to be in it uh, for the last week, but no, they won't cast me as anything. And I'm hoping to go uh, show my stuff and get cast as a wizard. <laughs> Dude, awesome. Like there's no better way to end a night. <laughs> no better way to end a night. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> 
Well, Emma, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry to soak up um, so much of your no, time. No, no, no. This was so fun. Thank you. Yeah, I just really appreciate you answering the DM and not thinking I'm some weird creeper. And um, No, I I, uh, I had a really good time, and I thought, you know, we had a good talk, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm super happy that I get to, like, enjoy your comedy and be part of your little cult. <laughs> enjoy, yeah. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your night, man. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Oh, and let me know when it comes out, and I'll make sure to promo it and stuff. Oh, dude, so kind. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All right, good night. Night. And I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. Dear listeners, If you've enjoyed getting to know today's guest or just want to support this upstart podcast, go to our Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, your donation will help with all the costs associated with producing the Getting to Know You pod. Don't forget the three free ways to support the pod. One, subscribe to the Getting to Know You pod. Two, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Three, go to Apple, write a review. And finally, If you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. If you're interested, just message us. See you.